Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and we have what an episode for you this week. We have what an episode? What? <laughs> anyway, we're speaking with Gregory Middleton, ASC CSE, uh, to talk about almost everything, but um, more specifically, his work on Moon Knight. Uh, he also shot, uh, he's, he's uh, nominated for an Emmy for Moon Knight. Um, he also shot uh, Game of Thrones, hello. Uh, he shot the Watchmen television series, which was excellent. Um, he also shot uh, two really great sci-fi shows from back in the day, Continuum and Fringe. Um, you know, a couple episodes each or one season of Continuum, something like that. Uh, we talk about it. Um, like I said, this one goes long. <laughs> I almost got it into uh, uh, two episodes, but I did some trimming when we went way off topic, and it's a two and a half you know, you know how to pause things. If you, if you need a break, hit pause. That's what these are for. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it definitely worth the time. Um, super educational, super interesting. Um, and, you know, Greg is, is uh, not only generous with his time and his knowledge, but also his uh, uh, expertise. It's awesome, all right? We, we had a great time. You're going to have a great time. You're going to love this one. Um, so I'm going to let you get to loving it. Here's my conversation with Greg Middleton, ASC CSC. The way that I normally start the podcast is by uh, asking how you got um, creatively going, but I understand you you were kind of always, you were dialed into film like right at the beginning, like as a kid. Yeah, pretty much. I was like, there's, uh, yeah, I just, really, like I so said, I was quite young. I was like 10, I think, when Star Wars came out, and that was the first kind of like, in the theater experience just made me like just you know blew me away and, and it became it became like the window to like well how is this done this like how are all these weird visuals like uh created and stuff never mind the story and uh and i was already playing with the, the family super eight camera as a kid then i uh, a couple right. of friends of mine i grew up with we started like there with like lego models doing some like stop motion and stuff and that became a we're doing little film tricks we're doing in because we were doing in camera edits right with the super eight camera there's right. no editing like we run up to the wall and then cut and then you know uh keep going and then roll again at that moment. It looked like you disappear in the wall, things like little things like that. So that was always an experimental stuff when I was uh, young. So then it became, uh, I mean, I told the story before once, but the, the in high school doing the same kind of thing with some other friends. And then your high school guidance counselor is like, so uh, what do you want to do? Like you want to go to college or what's going to like, where do you want to study? And, you know, I was at that point, like, well, I want to keep doing this. It seems like I won't never want to stop playing with cameras and stop, uh, stop making films. And, you know, the, you know, it's a lot of jokes about high school guidance counselors being kind of useless and out of touch and everything and all that. But I got to say, he gave he gave great advice, which is, well, it's, it's, you have sort of two choices. You're probably going to keep doing this in some way because you clearly love it. You've started movie club in school, all this kind of stuff. So you want to decide if you want to try and make it a career or it's going to be a hobby you do, you know, on your on your weekends. Like that's you're going to obviously keep doing it. And of course, as a young, ambitious kid, you're like, well, it's got to be a career, right? Cut to, right. you know, being in the suburbs of Montreal. It's like I, nobody I knew in film. There's nobody. Nobody in the West End of Montreal, no one I grew up in. None of the parents are like, what the film industry? Like, what is that? Like, it's just totally foreign. There's no shoots. It's like, there's nothing like that in any of the things. That all seemed a bit crazy. But, uh, you know, to, to our parents' credit, they were like, okay, you know what? You're clearly highly motivated. And the one thing that they knew was like, being highly motivated and really enjoying something is a good is a, a good quality to have for something you want to pursue. So they, you know, they sort of all collectively let us, you know, pursue that. And that's kind of when that started. And then uh, went to university and... Tried to take film 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 classes and it went from there. So, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because out of the whatever it is, 70 some odd DPs I've interviewed, most of them didn't like were interested in film, but didn't just immediately as a kid go, I'm going career. You know, a lot of them were like architects and stuff and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, photographers and whatnot. So because um, yeah, I was kind of the same way. I, I yeah. went straight for like immediately. It was like, ah, I'll figure that out. Film. But yeah, they always think you're like, they always say you're lucky. It's like, well, lucky you knew what you wanted to do. It's like, well, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew I wanted to try and go into it. It's not like I had some great expertise when you're 15 years old. Like, oh yeah, I, this, I can imagine myself being a cinematographer. Like, I don't even know what that what the job job is at that point. Um, and I would, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a natural photographer. I wasn't playing with like a still camera lot or taking, it wasn't a photography interest so much. It's just like filmmaking in general. And then in university, you know, everyone has, you get a parcel out the, the roles on a film and uh, I was just, I was a cinematographer and a few other students films. I, I, I seem to have some aptitude for being on the camera. I'd no like real, you know, like uh, deep photography interest necessarily, but I, I like the collaborative nature of that role and being like, cause you're kind of like right next to the person that, you know, when you're directing and writing, say, like, well, where to put the camera, how to create this effect and how do we want to, I like that sort of being in that sort of the crucible of that. And it seemed like, okay, well maybe I'll try and make that like, you know, the sort of a career I think, or, or that was the beginning of it anyway. It, it is funny because uh, I, again, same exact same with me, but it's it's a now that I think about it, it's almost like a tolerance for stress, like director, <laughs> tons of stress, right? You're dealing with everything. Oh, yeah. Cinematographer, yeah. still very stressful, but narrowed, right? First AC, pretty stressful, but you get to not think about stuff for a minute, you know, camera operator, stressful, but not all the time. You kind of, you can do this for a little yeah. bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a, I remember when I was making my... Um the first, uh, first feature film that I shot was called Kissed, which was basically made with the, the, st- the school's equipment like a few years after I'd graduated uh, by a master student named Lynn Stopkowicz, who's still a, a close friend of mine and a brilliant filmmaker. And, you know, it was like a 22-day shoot. It's like an all-student crew. We're shooting this scene. But, I mean, at that point, I remember she came to me. We were shooting this tiny bathroom, right? And so, you know, when we're not, when we're not filming and I'm not either operating or being close to the camera when we're doing a, a take, then... We should decide the next setup. Then I'm in there lighting the next scene, and each, and, and she just came to be like, "Why well, you like never get a break?" It's like because when we're setting up, she can go deal with some costume stuff or think about the next scene, and I'm like, "It's like yeah, it's like if I'm not watching every take, then it's like okay, what's the next setup? I have to light that one." It's it is a bit of an all go go thing, but there's um, but there's a fluid nature to that because you're kind of always because you're always kind of creating and solving problems. It's less it's less time. Like stress when you're kind of static is kind of worse, right? Like just sitting there yeah. worrying. It's like that's a way different thing than like, okay, I got 20 minutes. Uh, we're behind schedule. I got to do this bathroom. Like, hey, how do I get this shot? And it's then you're you're you have control over what you're trying to do, and you're trying to do things quickly. But it's a it's a it's an active stress, which I think is pretty good. As we learn more about, you know, even the medical profession now knows so much more about stress in terms of how yeah, like cortisol levels and being static. Like you know, people that sit in an office that are super stressed out like have way higher instances of uh, heart disease than people that are, you know, if you're stressed running around doing things, it's way different. It's more, it's a more natural, um, I believe they call state for our bodies. Yeah. It's like you're, cause if you're doing it physically, it's like if we were, if you and I are in the tribe and we're in the old pre-human days, right. We'd be running around, you know, uh, hunting in a pack, right. In a big group of us, then we'd be very stressful, but we're also be in a fairly optimistic mood because there's the whole nature of us being kind of like, you know, hunting game, that kind of thing is a very cooperative thing. You're, it's a, there's a stress involved, but it's not the same sitting there worrying, not having any control over what you're doing. Uh, right. And I think there's a thing about the cinematographer stress where it's, you're still very, it's in the mode. It's quite, it's quite active. So I think that's, it helps manage that a bit more, I think, at least for me anyway. Yeah. I mean that, that um, obviously the teamwork is specifically uh, important to, or, or I suppose 
both important to the experience, yeah. but also something that, that people look for. But um, the uh, problem solving, the act of problem solving is something that can become quite addictive for mm -hmm. the type of personality oh, yeah. that thrives yep. in this industry. Completely. You can see people that like this can't. I mean, you know, the, the more I worked, the more once I, my professional career started and I started working on bigger and bigger productions, you start to realize the types of people that, you know, end up in those shows and end up in those jobs. And they, there's, a, there's a big common knowledge that love for uh, the problem solving, love for the sort of team making or, t or being in a team. Uh, and they all have to have a little bit of a, like the joke we used to make, it's like, it's like the carnival. It's like, oh yeah, ran away and joined the carny. It's like, yeah, that's it. You're done. You're toast now. You're spending the whole life now with the carnival running around like a total, like a weird, you know, person who's like left everything behind because it's a bit like that now. Yeah. And a lot of them are brilliant. They're like that. Even the producers. I mean, some of the best, like most incredible problem solvers I know are like amazing line producers and, and production producers that are really clever about, you know, figuring out the priorities or figuring out like who needs what and what, like what the result will be like, this is the kind of thing that's going to help this person excel and which will help the show. And there's a whole layers and layers to that that's really fascinating. And the ones that really care and are really like sitting there quietly going, hmm, you know, then they come yeah. to you like, Greg, let me ask you about something. And they're like, yes, yeah. I was thinking about this, you know, because they've been watching carefully, like how I work or how we're solving a problem. Uh, and that's brilliant. That's like, man, that makes the whole, you know, that can make the whole experience like really enriching and really fantastic. And I always learn tons from those people as well. So. Yeah. The, the thing that it took me a while to not get, um, uh, bent out of shape, so to speak, or overly stressed about things going wrong or options yeah. being taken from you. And I think it was Adam Savage kind of turned my head on that, which was like, whenever an option is taken from you, that just prunes one of the, uh, uh branches off the decision tree that makes your job easier. When you're left with like two oh, yeah. choices, now you yeah. just get to go, all right, well then let's just make the best one. Like stop stressing about what you could have been doing, you know? Yeah. And oh, learning yeah. that little lesson. Oh goodness. It's like, <laughs> I, I just want better. you know, I just want to let you know, by the way, uh, can you have all the options in the universe and go, it'd be like, the worst, it'd be like, the worst. <laughs> like okay. The, um, yeah, those constraints are something that's where the, some of the magic happens. Right. I mean, there was, I mean, one of my famous cinematographer, favorite cinematographers when I was uh, growing up and I mentioned meet him, um, once was Conrad Hall, right? And he used to talk about the happy accident, right? Because, you know, because lighting can be looked at as a plan, like you're executing a plan, you're designing it all on paper, you're just building it. But it's also, it's a really a process. It's like throwing paint at the camera. It's like, oh, wait a second. No, wait, that's, I didn't think about that. Like, let's turn that one off now and and building as you go, right? Suddenly you're, like the composition may be very different than you imagine. You're like, you know, I, maybe it's better if I just leave this area dark and I miss, or you're realizing like in a scene, for example, like one of the big things that'll happen uh, that I've noticed is, a, you know, is, um, if I have an idea of like what the contrast wants to be, I have to main, I have to remember like, well, what's how is my director going to want to shoot this, or what, or the shot size is going to be like, is this a, is this a scene we're going to get into close up? Because then if I need a certain layer of contrast or color, I need to have it in here, not just right. in the wide shot, which may only be in the scene for thirty seconds or five seconds or or twenty four frames if it's on certain types of shows. So then you're like, think about the idea of okay, well then here's the idea, you know, here's some of the ideas I want with this color or this amount of contrast. Then I got to think about, well, where's it going to go? And then it's like, you know what, I place the person. And then there's a lot of that stuff that's a process that I wouldn't have known that until I'm in there, you know, doing the scene with the director and like, you know what, actually, this might hold play in the close up. I watched the block yeah. and I'm like, even though we're going to shoot other things, you know, my instinct might be telling me I'd be watching. Um, uh, there was something I remember doing a long time ago with uh, on Game of Thrones with uh, Jeremy Perez, who is one of the directors I've worked with uh, quite a bit. And he's a brilliant guy. And there's a scene with, um, 
Amelia Clark and she was uh, was Barristan Selmy's funeral. And, you know, there's a, you know, it's, a, it's sort of there's a dynamic to scene where she's got she's grieving. And the question is, in the scene, she's going to act out a bit, maybe, and maybe make some bad decisions, which is being be part of her theme. Right. So she's going to act out uh, against the nobles of Marine at the time. Or how is she going to deal with that? And it was a bit of a certain amount of like, where is the emotion going to be? Where are we going to, how is she going to see it? So she's facing away from the people behind her at the beginning. And, you know, and Amelia is an amazing actress. And I'd, I'd worked with her enough at that point, but mid, midway through the season that I could sort of see, you get a sense sometimes, like when you're shooting, I think it's for me when I'm, when I'm operating or not, like sort of, you just watch the actors as, as it takes go by, kind of like the internal mechanics are starting to work with their unconscious and as, as the performance is building. And, and you sort of see like, you know, you can sort of see like the, the gear shift going. It's like, oh yeah, there's, you know, this is, it's amazing. But, you know, I learned this on The Killing actually, where I worked the same cast for, for three years and started to go, it's like, you know, me Ray, but like I'd be with some director, just, I mean, just do one more. I'll figure out a way why, because you can, I can sort of see when she's about to get out of the top gear and something incredible is going to come out. And I sort of had this sense of um, that for Amelia in the scene. One of the things we talked about, Jeremy and I, was a specific super tight shot that we were going to looking a bit more of the, a little higher in the, it's sort of a shot that's been used many times before, but sort of feels like the world is a bit coming down on you a little bit. And we've been trying to looking for certain places, what scenes in the episodes, we were, the two episodes we had to, to, to use this. And this seemed like this is probably a great one. And it's like, wow, this would be a great time for it. Cause I could tell she's like, she's really, it's like, it's quite emotional. I know there's a lot there to look at and be very nice and close. And so at the very end, and we were a bit behind, I pushed them, I was like, no, just let me, I push the camera right in. It'll be take five seconds and do one more take. And, and Amelia could sort of see us like hustling and she's like, just stayed there and moved the camera in and did, th- did that. And she's amazing. And she's like incredible in this moment, like a tear rolls down her cheek. It's like, I mean, it was like this magic thing to capture. And, but it took like sort of time to sort of like me learn how to pay attention that way in some ways. And also have, have the idea of like, we had some ideas and when do we throw it in? Um, and that's all, that's all like a fluid thing, right? It's like the happy accent of like, you have to have some ideas in your head about what you're going to toss around and when you're, when you're going to shoot a scene. Uh, but you don't know what certain you know when when it's going to come up. So you have to be. It's a lot. There's a lot of flexibility to that, and a lot of um, responding to things. I think which makes the shooting such a you know such an exciting thing. You know, for me, anyways. Yeah, you know that that um, makes me think. Like, was there a point? Maybe it was on the killing, or maybe it, you know Game of Thrones or something. But was there a point where you um, where your sort of natural risk aversion? went away because mm. i i feel like when yep. you're starting out you know as, as a dp you really try to play it safe or make everything pretty or like you're trying not oh, yeah. to lose Absolutely. your job or yes. whatever you know <laughs> yeah oh yeah this is a this is a really this is a great topic because it's um it's uh because you relate to people like conrad hall at that point like you know the you know, it's even some of the, the great masters that I've managed to meet, you know, in my life now, like, you know, Roger Deakins, everything else. Like, Roger is the hardest working guy. And, you know, he's, he's extremely hard working when he's dead because he's just thinking like, is this good enough? Is this, I don't know. Is, like, he's just, that's how he is. Um, and, but also in a, in a way, since British. he, yeah, true. But also he has, and also he has nothing to prove. He's not like, is this good enough? Like, will people be judging? He's just like thinking for him. It's like, is this the right choice? Am I, am I? you know, am I failing in my effort of creation? Not like I got to look good. Whereas right. when you're starting on, and I started very, very young, I was very fortunate to be, but I'm like in my early twenties, I looked like I was like 15. So there's a lot of like, well, who's the kid? Why is the kid shooting that what doing this? And, and so, you, you know, you, there is a sense where you, you feel the microscope on you and you want to make sure you, you know, do the job, prop, do the job well and properly. 
but you can easily second guess yourself because you think you're going to be only judged by, let's say, just the lighting, right? Uh, and you'll also be judged by if you're quick enough, uh, how you work with the tree, everything else. But this, usually when you're starting out, you're usually more focused on, I have to figure out how to do this and get this lit. And and I'm also maybe not as experienced, haven't cleared how to do certain things. And, you know, a director I know just told me a story um, last week, which is about this. And I was recognizing it was somebody, she was very frustrated by the DP she was working with because like, she wanted to do something with a moving camera, a bit more of a wonder in this room and, and end up in the door and dramatically it made sense. And he just refused. Cause he was like, he couldn't, I don't know how to like that. I can't do it. And, and he was in that state where he's like, I have to look out for how it looks. Right. And he didn't know how to do it. And he wasn't willing to try and figure out on the fly because he was too afraid of not being able to either do it or the time. But he was, you know, he was governed more by the fear of that. Whereas now I find myself like, you know, doing things like with the director, like, what if we did all this? And then afterwards I'm like, now how the hell am I going to light that? <laughs> right? right. But, but I'm more excited about the, the storytelling content of the shot and the lighting as opposed to just that. And I think it crossed over with a bit of experience. I think the first few times I was doing that, it was more like, you just realize it's not the end of the world if it doesn't quite work out in a certain way. And that fear of it not, when, you, when you're less worried about it not working out, it usually always does work out. There's, right. a, there's a certain amount of, you know, confidence you get when you shot a little bit more. And it just took a little while for me to, you know, because I was very, very, like I used to feel, I used to, I used to feel the pressure a huge amount when I was starting out. Even when I was doing, like films like Slitter, for example, which was like two thousand seven. We shot that now, so it was eight. Um, I was working with James Gunn, and it was like, and we had, we had a you know a twenty eight million dollar movie trying to be made for fifteen million dollars. So every, right. you know, nothing was. We never had enough for anything to do it, and we had a lot of demands, and uh, had a really big crew. A lot of them were new to me, and it was a lot of, and I was, I was very young, so it was like the microscope was on, right? It was, it was if anything going wrong, it was all obviously my fault because I'm like the weak link. Um, in that in that context, right? Like that they would look at me as like this small art house DP who's now doing this, you know, almost $20 million horror film. Uh, and that was tough. I, I felt like, felt the personal pressure a lot. And I knew a couple of the producers well, and, you know, they were vouching me for stuff like that, but they were easily, you know, just, there's a lot of room under the bus for people. And I was definitely the person that could end up under the wheel sometimes. So it, uh, that kind of stuff can kind of wear on you a little bit. But if you, if you persevere and get through it, then, like you kind of come across over a point where uh, you, it's just like you feel a bit freer, right? You just feel like you don't have to prove yourself. Like every setup, like my director friend was stumped that day. That that poor cinematographer, he thought like he had to prove himself that day and he had been asked to do things before and was too afraid of failing that he wasn't willing to, to take a risk with with her. Uh, and and so he was really, it was like self-preservation for him, right? It was less like, and there comes a point where you, you like you don't, you're worried less about the self-preservation because you kind of either done it enough or have the confidence to go like you know what I'll figure it out and if I can't figure it out I'll tell her I can't figure it out but it's more important that I do that and I think I think the thing that made the difference for me was which probably it was was going doing some television I think specifically the killing because that show was um was still like you know f- doing 45 minutes in seven days ish seven and a half days episodes so you know it's a fairly you have to, a lot of quick pace and yeah. a lot of and a lot of really interesting great really great directors um and they were be you know kind of demanding some of them are like well let's you know ed bianchi doesn't want to do a lot of coverage so the shots can be sometimes kind of complicated but you get so good at being at being on the fly that you're kind of always on the fly in some ways and that that leads to like oh you know what then it's like i don't get thrown off as easily so i mean i could not have done the work i did on watchmen for example with the the long one shots like that was that, that episode, the episode six of um, 
yeah. uh, of uh, this extraordinary being was that. I mean, I, I absolutely adored that challenge. And I was working with Stephen Williams like crazy, trying, trying to figure out how to like really get like to block all the scenes and do I because I, I love that part of the process, but I would never have been even comfortable even attempting that, you know, like you know, 10 years earlier. And that became like a more exciting part of the process than just than just the lighting. It was like the lighting was served this, but the camera work was very integral to the to the journey of the story. Um, so I think the short answer is it was experience, and it was it was like experience with taking a risk a few times. Like, hey, you know what? I got five minutes. What are I going to do now? I've never done it this way. Let's just try that, right? And then and that builds some momentum to when someone says, you know, what, Greg, I want to I want to try it like one shot like okay great well let's just see what have we got for that and then quickly talk to your crew and figure out you know because you're if you surround yourself with really brilliant people that you like working with and also i mean that's a huge resource too you don't have to have the right answer i mean i've many times i got asked a direct by a director or something to do that i said yes yes sounds great i like this idea i don't know how i'm going to do it yet i'll get back to you in five minutes to make sure i (laughs) know because you know i don't know specifically how i'm going to accomplish that or what the thing is and you quickly huddle with your you know your operator and your gaffer and your grip and stuff and you know, look at the various possibilities and then judge them based on time and things like that. And that's actually kind of now that's I know that's a, I'm happily giving that answer. Like I'm yes, I'm going to we're going to do it. I don't know how yet. So let me get back to a couple minutes and I'll tell the idea. I don't quite have an estimate yet, but I think just ha- taking risks a few times, build a to- build a tolerance for it. And then yeah. also builds experience to know that it sounds like a huge risk, but it's not. It's like it's a camera and some actors and some lighting. <laughs> it's not it's not like if I don't connect the nerve in the person's brain, they're going to be blind forever. It's not, you know, it's not that. Um, and I think that, I think the frequency of doing that on a series really, really helped me. It certainly helped me on the bigger shows, like things like, like game of Thrones was like, you know, a very, a very big challenge, but that was cross shooting some stuff sometimes. And we're like, we're doing stuff on the beach with like a bounce car and the sun behind a person's head and like, hurry up in 10 minutes. And that's just the nature of like, you know, some of that production, but that's, which is different than what you would think when you, I mean, this show doesn't feel like that when you watch it, but there's a perception that it's like, it's all like, you know, it's champagne, strawberries and gold-plated toilets. And there's a joke. It's like, you said, no, I'm over here now. And we'll slowly, it's like, it's still a 10 hour day and it's a lot of complicated work. And, and being able to be a bit more on the fly is a real, is a huge asset. It, it, it doesn't go away like that type of, you know, that type of uh, tolerance for, for risk and, and trying stuff, you know, that doesn't go away. That goes, I mean, it's, it's for, you know, I think of all the you know the great cinematographers that are working now that I admire so much and listen to them doing some of the films like the Hoyt Van Hoyt and people like that. They're like, well, we, right. this was a way to try and do this, right? Like we got to roll the dice and then we're going to, you know, try this new technique. And it just t- doing that, I guess tolerance of risk is built by experience. Just keep doing it. I think. Yeah. You know, uh, that, that brings up a couple thoughts I had. One of them being, uh, which is more of like an education question, which is simply just like, what are some sort of, things you can do to keep that pace up, you know, to, Mm. to work quickly, especially when having to come up with maybe interesting lighting scenarios or whatever, but also, um, you know, with a, with a show like game of Thrones or whatever, uh, or really any of the larger shows, um, is there is in what ways is that, is it the same as any other shoot and in what ways is it different? You know, uh, in in the sense of like these, like you were saying, everyone thinks you got like a million dollar, but well, whatever. We had a million dollar yeah, budget per yeah. episode, or whatever. But um, you know that that's going to go forever. You can do whatever you want and get every lighting fixture you want. You know, we're in simple situations where you are just on a beach with a bounce card. Like, how do you keep that looking, quote unquote, cinematic and not like a like a um, 
like a like an indie or like a student film, you know, because a student could just go on a beach with a bounce card. You know, what's the difference there? That was oh. that was five questions. Yeah. OK. <laughs> um, let me think. What's the first part of that question? Because I can uh, the bounce card thing, I tell you. What's the first Jesus part? Christ. Sorry. <laughs> first part. Uh, dude, I'm so. Yeah, I'm bad. No, I'm the sorry. Problem, um, first part was just uh, uh, it was risk aversion. Then there was. Um, oh, well, uh, ways ways to keep moving quickly and still oh, yeah. achieving a, a good result. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's and that kind of I mean, I think it just kind of comes down to taste. It's like this weird thing where I mean, I can I learn on like in the kind of like one part of the journey of understanding how to, you know, at least how I would pers- uh, do this job as as best as, as sort of I could figure out was. It's kind of like I've got to come up with and on the, on the macros. This is making, let's say, I'll go back to a film I did like in 1998. So it's like a $1.6 million 22-day shoot. Um, the You have to come up with a, a plan that you can accomplish, right? Like it's like one thing to say, it'll all be this way. But like I still have to shoot the film in 22 days. And I have to make – I have to come up with a, a plan to give me kind of what I want in that time. And that sort of – that sort of part of the problem solving is the same as when you're like, I'm on a beach. The sun's going down. i got an hour. That's sort of the same thing. It's like, what can I do that will still give me the shots that I want? Never mind how I'm gonna we're gonna block the scene out. It's the same sort of thinking. It's like you have to sort of pick a technique that will fit into the into the time frame, and you know, and that which is a which is a really important thing. And it's also what like you know, what experienced directors or directors look for in a DP is they they want beautiful work, and but they don't want it to be like they don't take away all their time too, right? If they get one take, because I've spent so much time, it's like and you know working with their with the cast they're gonna need five or six takes to get what they want out of, out of it then that's that's useless right like a great lighting like right. that that has torpedoed the ability to capture performance is not useful to anybody and and that's the thing going back to that earlier comment about the the wonder my friend was trying to get and so I, I sort of remember that that's the big thing was like you know what I want to do something that's gonna give me a certain type of look for this particular film but I've got to figure out what the recipe is it's actually actually accomplished like you know whether it's doing something with like that particular film, which was uh, shot many years ago, it was a bit of it was a romantic comedy and uh, with a lot of uh, gay and lesbian characters. And we wanted something kind of colorful and and playful, but a little bit romantic. And I was like, you know what? I haven't used any real rear nets before, especially in a very subtle way. Oh. that could, you know, give a little something. Um, and it, it would give us, you know, give you some lighting artifacts. We had a lot of stuff on. We have some musical theater numbers. We had three musical numbers on a stage and stuff like that. All this stupid amount of things to do in a small shoot. But it was a nice recipe. It actually worked quite well. And and there's something that would give me a little certain bit of a look that would be a bit identifiable with the amount of like with our art direction we were using and stuff. And and that was a quick experiment. I was like, okay, now I've got some one part of my look is now I've got that built in. It's something I done now. It's just a question of like the lens and, and that kind of stuff. And and that's something that it wouldn't, you know, require. It wasn't like an elaborate lighting thing. It's like a light very simply and I could add a nice little glow to someone with using these rear nets. And I picked kind of a, a warm color net too, like not a classic Christian Dior, which I couldn't get actually, but there were, there were, um, there was a, sort of a slightly pinkish kind of color, which worked out beautiful on the skin, but it was a way to like, okay, here's a way for me to add something to this film and in, in, in a way, which will also not suddenly slow me down. It didn't like create the lens too slow. It didn't, you know, cause other problems. And that's the same thing as like the sort of like, how do I do this scene, you know, in, um, in, in a few shots, right? Like, a lot of things on the killing were okay. The actors are very good. They usually don't need many takes. We want a certain atmosphere, and then I became better. Like you know what? Here's one shot, and I can put the other camera here and get him, you know, him or you know her at the same time. And I could do something because we're you know that was my first show with an Alexa. 
mm. first digital show. And I realized I could do stuff at night now with, I could use see way more stuff in the background. Now it's a question of turning things off and blocking things. Now I can, I can create contrast by turning off the streetlights behind us or, you know, blocking out flags or something like that. And then I've got a beautiful, you know, half silhouette soft thing with only a little bit of lighting. Um, and that's like, oh, that's a recipe I can now I can do that pretty quickly. It's like, hey, we got to do the scene. We're at the crime scene. I'm like, great. We'll put two practicals back there. I, I learned the trick of like putting a hundred, like a small, like a, a pepper or something like that with the you know, sodium color on it. Just put it six feet in the background. It'll look like it's a light that's, you know, 200 feet away. And I can do three things to help, you know, create more of the mood I wanted. And it's very quick. And I can also, yeah. if I'm, if I'm clever, get a second piece of coverage at the same time or a second camera can get two tight profiles and we can shoot the entire scene with and get four shots. We can do that in 45 minutes. And when you're doing that kind of pace, so you start to sort of develop more of these like little recipes for that. And that just becomes part of like the practice, but it's really about just seeing out what you can sort of do in the time. Like the bounce card thing came up like um, on the same thing, on the same uh, set of episodes with Jeremy on Game of Thrones. We had two scenes on, on, on beaches with a really long dialogue with Tyrion and, and Jorah. Uh, and that went, that took too long to get. And we was in a different location. And we had a slow start for a few other reasons why the stuff was, things were a bit late that morning. That happens. And then, um, and the scene was a bit more of a monster than we thought in terms of number of shots and like longer takes. And so we had a whole other scene where Tyrion and Jorah are on this other beach and they've just like, Tyrion wakes up on the beach. He's Jorah saved him from the stone man and pulled him out of the water, which we don't see. And, and we had to do all that scene. And we were like, we had like an hour and like, I'm watching the sun. And it's like, you know, I had this whole idea of like, doing we'll have this here. trick. Yeah. Now it's like, oh well, yeah. I'm like, okay. Thankfully, there was no clouds on the horizon. So we're going to get the sun right to the ground. But then I'm, and we're on this little spit, so we're on a. We just we scouted the location very carefully, and we planned some camera positions on the other side, so we'd have water in the foreground to get the reflections. You know, so we had this little spit of water with them. But as far as the coverage, it was like, okay, well now I like I got to cross shoot some of this stuff, and I got to figure out how I get Jorah walking away in the background with tear in the background, and I, I'm gonna have the sun in the lens. I'm like, oh well, then you know what? It's gonna be low enough that we can have Ian block it. So we can have him walk mm -hmm. up and we'll just put just, you know, sticks in a slider, which like, you know, as Sean Savage is operator. It's like, what do you think? Just sticks and sliders. Like, yeah, just that. Don't even bring the doll. You don't time to bring any of that stuff. Anyways, I brought like one light and then I brought like just, you know, some black and some white stuff. And then I realized, well, you know, if we, if we, the way I sit them this way, I put the sun between, like, that's a simple thing, right? If you and I are talking like, like this, if the sun's over here, you probably shoot both people fairly well. Yeah. Uh, and so like done that before, it's like, that'll get most of the coverage to get the dialogue first. And then just preset the cameras for like moving backwards to get the important part of the scene first. And then the beauty shots will look okay. The lower it gets, this usually the sun will be nicer anyway. So, and also it's priority to kind of shoot the performance first. So we shot this coverage first. Um, and then we, uh, we quick, before we moved down, I had a, uh, Sean built the third camera in the like blinking eye shot, which is like the waking up shot. We use a lens baby and it was actually my fingers doing it. Oh, nice. Sean. Oh yeah. I was like, but if we did the coverage and like, just stay here for one second, Ian and Jeremy's like, we got to move on. I'm like, well, just give you 30 seconds. We'll put the other camera here. And Ian just looked down here like 30 seconds later, got the take, move on. And then we sort of went wider. So like I learned the lesson of like performance first. And then while that's happening, thinking, okay, where's the next shot? Like they're getting this. I'm walking over. Okay. This is going to be here. Ian can walk here. That'll block the sun. And then, but that's happening. Other camera goes, you know, um, Dave Morgan goes across the way to set the profile shot. And we get two sizes there. We'll finish with the camera and the trees with a super wide shot. And we can probably get those in one or two takes in like 10, 15 minutes if we're lucky. So we sort of plan all that and sort of work out a plan that, you know, I sort of knew would work. So in this case, it was like 
you know, lesson photographic is like, look towards the sun. Usually looks pretty good. Uh, you know, cross shoot people will can look pretty good if they're the right, you know, doesn't, is not too difficult on their faces. So like all those things are going through the sort of plan in the head, especially when you roll up in the truck and you're like, okay, sun's going down <laughs> in one hour and 25 minutes. Uh, DIT stays there. No equipment goes on the spit. We can't afford the time to take things away when we have to get the wide shot. Um, but it was like just making sure that each shot was still going to look nice, right? Like, you know what? Then it's like, how do I put Ian and Peter? Because I'm like, Peter, I know we'll be in Peter's shot a lot because it's like he's like, you know, he's came near death. And this is the beginning of like more of their friendship, right? Like they're like Jorah kidnapped Tyrion and now this is like a little bit more of an understanding. They had the, the and because the next scene, they're really going to have understanding about, you know, because Jorah doesn't realize his dad is dead and Tyrion's going Tyrion's to spill the beans to him about that. And so I knew we'd be on Peter Moore. So it's like I picked like his was a more valuable background sort of anchored mm-hmm. the scene. Then like, I think it'll be water behind him, you know, sun off the water behind, um, behind Peter shot. And then Jorah will look good. He'll, he'll look good at pretty good side lit, you know, and the two cameras that way. So he's sort of like, I still picking shots. I think are going to look good and then try and put them in a sequence. Does that make sense? Totally. Absolutely. But it's it just takes every every single scene is like that in a weird way. It just that one was like, OK, how long to carry the camera off the spit? Right. How long for Dave to get across the way? And while that's going there, kind of get the third camera to where the little the old crane, which no time to use a crane to get the white, you know, that day sort of and then, and then it becomes your team. Right. Then it becomes Sean and um, who was our focus part of that year, uh, Seb, I think. And they're like, okay, great. And we sort of, then I do, then I'm doing the math of like, when you guys are done, you go there. And when this happens here, then you go there and we'll just keep leapfrogging. And then I know I'll be able to like, as soon as, I suppose as soon as everyone's out of the way, I know, you know, and I've got, and I'm right. And I've got the microphone to like my radio to Ian Mars, our DIT. This happening here. And Greg's like, yeah, Ian's like, you could maybe do one more. Like he's watching the exposure and I'm, I want to go right. shallow. And so that's all happening simultaneously. That's the only way you can get that kind of work done quickly. But making a little plan is sort of the, you know, the beginning of it anyway. Totally. And that that actually dovetails nicely into that second part of that ridiculous question I asked, which is uh, <laughs> making things look cinematic. I hate using the word cinematic because yeah, yeah. the Internet has ruined it. But you know what I mean? No, um, I know. When when you do only have uh, a few resources that you're supposed to maybe because yeah. of speed or maybe because you're uh, an indie. But um you know, at this point, we all kind of share the same tools. We can all get a hold of an LED panel that's decent. You know, I love my Kinos, you know, mm. the Astera tubes, yep. whatever. How much of, you're talking about your DIT, how much of that look comes down to the color grade, you know, especially on something like Moon Knight or Watchmen that is quite stylized. Like, how much of that is in post that you're getting that look or how much is it just getting an Alexa or having the sickest lenses? Like, can you get away with getting I'd that say- look with other setups? I say the irony is it's very, what you just, all the things you just mentioned are like 10% of it. So in this mm. case, in that scene there, it was about the location. And the one thing that that location was, was like all, every way you point the camera looked great. And with the sun lowing, lowing down, then it's like, how do you use it properly? The biggest, I think the biggest factor as far as like the, what the word cinematic is, is, you know, is when you're scouting, place your scene in an interesting place that, like visually supports the scene, offers some interesting visual angles that make sense for the scene. Um, and also is an area which can like, and also usually importantly offers more than one visual thing about it that you like, cause you don't always, you may not be on the one shot that shows it, but the whole scene. Uh, in this case, Jeremy really wanted the, the spit of land, like a little sandbar so we could get 
their spit and their reflections, right? So that's in the shot we knew we'd get. And it's, it's also a nice thing to have. The two of them are now linked kind of thing. It's like there's two of, you know, there's a lot of, they were showing about theme wise. It's also fairly pretty. Um, but just being on that little spit, it's like we were, because of course we are scouting it like, and uh, Chris Newman is like, so we think the sandbar will be there in two weeks, <laughs> but it's possible it won't be because, you know, depending on the storms in the lo- in the lock that like that might wash it away. It's like it does move and does it does sometimes it's gone. So we're like every week it's still there. It's still there. I'm like, great, great. So uh, but I think look, picking a location and the, the setting for your scene, because that can affect the lighting in every part of it. Right. And there's. Like part of the, and the irony is like the part of this thing was we kind of wanted, like st- we staged the scene, even though the other scene was in some ways visually, this one was kind of more important. Um, it was the one I want to put at the end of the day because our, 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 th- our theme for episode, our episode, this episode five was originally going to start with a dawn with Daenerys on her balcony, uh, when it, as if she'd been up all night, you know, contemplating her choices and stuff. Uh, and then the sun would be rising. And then this was going to be a sunset, right? And also it's a thing where Jorah at the end of the episode looks at his wrist and realizes he has grayscale like that's it for Jorah maybe we think so it's like a and so the idea of doing it at sunset was like for me it was a nice way to sort of bookend that visually so then we scheduled that way so we could be there late and also I'm looking at this location going well we like how this is does it work at sunset and I'm like yeah I know where the sun goes down that'll be great so I know if we show up late I know it's still gonna look great I'll come up with a plan for the scene as we did but more importantly the setting was it supported the scene nicely It, it looked great it was gonna look good Kind of in any weather, if it was cloudy, it would still would have been interesting in some ways. But I think that's the biggest part of it. Like that's the thing that you know drives me crazy sometimes when I see other works, even some stuff I've seen recently, where it's like there's been like no thought to like where the scene is taking place. Like it's like you like picking a location is the biggest part of I think the cinematic element that you're asking about, um, and having it also using the environment and the lighting opportunities environment to help the scene. Right? Like there was, I mean. You know, not to pick on recent stuff, but like there's some stuff with, you know, when Darth Vader and Obi-Wan are fighting in the new show and it kind oh, of starts in, a, it starts in a gray soup and it kind yeah. of finishes in a gray area. Right. Whereas, you know, if, if when in, I was watching a, a scene, dirt yeah, like piles, a, literal dirt piles everywhere. Well, yeah, right? you know, I, yeah, and I'm even talking Visually about the, the, interesting. The, 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 the climactic episode, which also oh, by, oh, the by, last episode, yeah, yeah, which by the way had incredible work by and I know people that worked on the show with like Ewan and 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 you and and um Hayden did a beautiful job in that moment but the term visually like they his ship lands and it's like it's all gray mark and then they kind of go into a grayer area and it's just like yeah. whereas you know visually for me uh, it would be interesting to have it start with some like something with more sun uh, or something with like some more con- and, and get to somewhere darker because i know they want to get somewhere darker because I know, you know, thematic, I knew he wanted to have the lightsabers light. And also it's beautiful, right? I mean, right. and by the way, Those also, this is like, <laughs> yeah, by the way, I hate, I'm not trying to criticize other people who were, I'm not, I wasn't there. And all oh, no, I don't know what they're up against, right? Like there's a whole, sometimes yeah, yeah. I like that plan, Greg, and then they wouldn't let me do it. Like you never know this. Yeah, and yeah. It, but there's, my point is like to the, thinking about where your scene takes place, like how to use the environment. And how, if you want to have like changes in the in scene, like we could start seeing somewhere else and then go somewhere else. You could start in the sun, go somewhere dark, or like there's things we'd start in, if you're on the balcony, then you go somewhere more reclusive, right? When the scene is going, you start like in the open daylight on Thrones and we can get up in the in a kind of cave when someone's more isolated or the, the, the cinematic thing is all about using those like tools, right? When you're, when you're scouting locations, like really think about that, how to use the place yeah. or create the place, right? If like, maybe it's a great location, but you need to do one thing to it to give yourself this other visual element to use, right? Like, 
like you know that's that, that that's sometimes for me that's i think the biggest thing with cinematic is that sort of planning uh and that's you know and that's sometimes locations are expensive but if they're outdoors or often you know free or close to free it's just taking the time to be there and then realizing you know what be let's be here at sunset yeah. uh, if we can right and also i knew if i if i lose the light and i'm doing it at like magic hour you know still panic it'll also probably look okay right i'll still get there right there was a like we did a scene in um um a film uh, it's a World War One movie called Passchendaele, directed by Paul Gross and starring Paul Gross. So it's a Canadian war movie about um, the Battle of Passchendaele in 1916. And, you know, when we shot in the foothills of Calgary for some of the stuff and in, in the sort of home front scene, there's a scene where he's he's fallen over this nurse and he has this long talk. And it was at the end of our day, it was the same thing. It's like, and now we're, we're trapped and we're like, it's now it's went from an afternoon scene to like, we're just going to barely get it before the sun goes over the mountains. And, and we bear, and we, it took a long time to get, you know, the first couple shots and, I got like one and a half or two takes on Paul and it's fantastic. And it looks amazing because that time of day can look amazing. But I made sure when I picked the spot that I, you know, cause I'm thinking ahead, like we could be here late, right? It's the last thing yeah. of the day. Who knows what's going to happen? Will it still look good late? Will it look good? Even if it, the sun has already gone down, you know, and it's plays as a magic hour type thing. Like um, I've been, been inspired by some of uh, Bob Richardson's amazing work on, um, sure. on uh, he did some really beautiful stuff like that on the horse whisperer. And, and it, like that, you know, then you sort of think ahead, like, okay, if I get here at four, it's great. If we have to shoot six, it's in a hurry, but it'll be great. If we get there and we're totally screwed and we have to do magic hour, it'll still be kind of great. So, you know, you sort of think about the setting that way. Right. And that's the biggest thing for making those, those choices, I think. Yeah. Well, and to your point, like, and I've said this before on this podcast, like all filmmaking, all art really is contrast, whether it be lighting whether it be mm-hmm. storytelling or as you're saying, you know, uh, narratively going from one location to another that, that are, you know, yin and yang, so to speak. You know, if you think of music uh, having, you know, I'm a metal fan, but just like thrash metal, that's just one note yep. and a guy screaming. Isn't that great? No, you know, no. It's, and, it's and yeah, it's like and scene to scene, too. It's like within the scene. That's something that I weren't I I was so impressed with um, like Jonathan Demme was one of my favorite directors uh, of all time. It was uh, now passed away, but he worked on the killing. He did a couple, he did uh, two episodes and he did the finale of the series and um, he did another episode, but we had this, the thing he was so great at was remembering like, like all the parts of the energy, both the location, the setting, the look to, to have contrast within the scenes and it's particularly transitions. He's very good at like, you know what, I'm going to go over here. And then I think the next thing is going to start with, and we're doing it. We'd come out of a scene and he, he asked specifically, he wanted an 18 wheeler truck because we're going to, we're in this, in the, in the scene where, uh, Lyndon's going to pull over and then uh, the young suspects in season four is going to uh, surprise him at, at, her, at her window and then and then talk. Uh, but the transition wanted the very quiet scene. He wanted some energy. So this, this his cut was going to be we're we're dolling past the gas pumps where we are. And like basically this 18 wheeler just rushes through camera like, and reveals all this. Right. So it was a hard cut from something very static to it's like, right. And then. See, and it was a great, it was a great, but it was such a great lesson. Like, right. All the tools, like use everything. Like he's, he's thinking about, you know, motion and sound and the slight shockiness of that cut. Um, you know, and he, he's a you know, masterful director and, and that stuff I find endlessly fascinating and, and, you know, learning so much about that even now. Uh, but that's again, using all the tools, right? Like how do you use all the tools like light to dark, you know? I don't want to have the scenes all the same color one after the other when they're going different places. I mean, time of day, you know, quality of lighting, it should one reflect the scene, but also I kind of want to, don't want the scenes, even if they have a similar mood, 
and visually I need to make sure it's like, it wants to be like a nice little journey into somewhere new and like yeah. uh, lighting color wise, or you don't want to confuse the audience. It's sort of trying to think about all that stuff at the same time. And a lot of that's yeah. location. That's what the, the big thing is that the really great director is like, where is the setting? And it's like, I'm not doing that scene up against the wall. We're doing that over, you know, with uh, something that reflects what we're going for. And unless I want it to be playing, playing, right. There's a, there's a time for that when you want like just the face on nothing. And, the ones that really think about that amaze me the most. Yeah. The, you know, it's, that's one of the reasons why I started reaching out to more um, production designers for the show. Oh yeah. Just because I've Great said before, idea. like sometimes production designers or uh, DPs get credits for the production designers work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, oh, oh, the cinematography <laughs> yes. on that show is beautiful. And yeah. you're like, that was a sci-fi show. Oh, yeah. Like you liked the set. You liked the yeah. costumes. You, the cinematography they're, they're, was just chill. You know Exactly. Very often great cinematography is mistaken for great production design. And, I've certainly been the beneficiary of that many times where, and also it's a great, it's a great collaboration too. Cause it's, that's the other part of that, you know, equation where the director is the designer where you're like, okay, what should this feel like? I mean, uh, Stefania Sella, who'd be a great guest, by the way, she'd be a wonderful person to have on your podcast. She's a, she's a production designer on, on Moon Knight and she's worked with, uh, uh, was it, I, want, I want to get the wrong filmmaker who did uh, black mass and stuff. She's been some really amazing mm. work and she's very much like, she's, it's like, you know, you know, has this one beautiful mix of like, I want to get the palette right for the, the world I'm making, but like, I got to create an interesting setting for this scene, right? Like, where's the scene going to take place? Like the great, like there's a really good book on production design. It's quite old called By Design, uh, which is an interview with um, old uh, production designers like Richard Silbert and a lot of the films in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And I can't remember which, I might've been Richard Silbert just talking about it. And he's really going back in the way when you're designing, he's like designing, you know, big proper sets, but listening to him discuss in his interview about like, he really thinks about the staging of a scene. Like if he doesn't have a director yet, he's like, what's happening in the scene where, you know, this scene is about X, this person's more dominant. Like he's thinking about the staging possibilities. Like, well, then I put the living room a little higher on some steps. And so here, so it could create some levels for them to use. Like he's really thinking a lot about what the scene content is and visually how to make it so that, you know, um, my, if I was a cinematographer, I've got, I've got window opportunities. I've got a lot of opportunities for, to have the look or have the room feel different. Like it's a, there's a lot of things to just, you know, that have to go into, uh, you know, to making those decisions where it's like, what's this, what's this happening in this scene? It's not just, just a, it's not just a room. It's like, where are they going to be? Who's going to move around? Like, what are the, what are the ways a scene might play out? All right. Cause you don't actually know that until your director and your cast are in there. Uh, it's a really interesting book. I, I recommend it. It's been yeah. a while since I've read it, but I think I read just like once I like when I was in film school. But um, but that was like a real lesson in that. That was the beginning of that thinking. Like, oh right, this is a really big deal. This is not just like, is, are the colors of the wall right? Like rule one. How about I don't make the walls the same color as everyone's skin? <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, like you know, and if you want a really like low key scene do it in a room with darker walls, right? And don't be afraid to make the walls way darker than you think because I can always add a bit of light, but it's, it gets more complicated for us cinematographers to make walls darker, like, you know, lighting-wise, you know? There's, uh, like there's some great stuff in Moon Knight where we went with super dark walls in, in, um, in the house that uh, Mark and the Mark slash Stephen um, uh, grows up in in Moon Knight. Like, they're, yeah. like, really, really dark, right? And it's and But it's really great because it makes for a very easy way to make a lot of mood. It makes him jump out of the background and it, and it feels like this, you know, weirdly, um, not weirdly, but this like an over intense memory of like what this was like. It's reflecting his own emotional state of these memories anyway. Uh, 
And yeah, it's just like, yeah, design is like an underestimated component. Well, Steven's apartment too is even like oh, yeah. gorgeous. You know, it's it busy, but not in like a, a confusing way. It's just, there's like a lot of texture going, all the books and everything. And oh, it's yeah. just very, it's a very, uh, it's like his sort of kind of room. Yeah. His like busy mind of like, I love all these things. Like he's just like a bit of a nutty professor for Egypt. And it's also a giant like loft, right? Like it's a big pyramid, right. which was because I think the, uh, I think Muhammad's idea was like, let's put some pyramids and everything. And I went and he pressed her on that. And she's like, all right, if you want that, I will design something and we'll figure it out. It'll be like a weird pyramid library. It'll make no sense, but it's going to look cool. And it'll give it that stuff. And, and uh, yeah, she's an incredible designer. And that, that set was incredible. We, that was our first week of the shoot. And it was, uh, yeah, it was quite amazing. Yeah, I uh, I would love to talk to her. Um, so I, I've had the privilege on this show of talking to a few people who have worked on uh, sci-fi shows that I've loved. And I'm being very specific when I say sci-fi because uh, uh, Moon Knight is not the first show that you worked on where you had people playing two different people. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah. So you did what? All of season three of um, of uh, Fringe? No, I only or did most I of did, season. Th- the no, I even did, episodes. I did six episodes. I did. It was two, six. Four, six, I think it was four? two, four, six, eight, or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Because the I like the first half of the season. Because um, David Moxness, who had been on the show before, because when they, I guess they pushed the he, he was on a big uh, miniseries that, that pushed what he was doing between seasons, and so I, I I subbed for him basically on that. So that was just basically me filling in for him. And uh, yeah. I don't think I didn't have to do. I did some scenes with Olivia and Bolivia, but I didn't do any like we didn't do any motion control stuff. It was all like they didn't interact in my episode. So I didn't have to do the mm. really terrible ones like that was like we had to do with them um, with Oscar. I didn't have to do that. That work. Yeah. But but that was a, That was a very different thing. And that's, you know, when I look at my work on that episodes in particular, I I'm like not no one is proud of the, my work on that show in terms of like lighting wise and what I managed to do, you know, a couple years later on the killing because I was still. I was filling in for somebody else. I was trying to, you know, fit into the show. And and uh, Tom Yatsko was incredibly gracious to have me um, come in. I'd, I'd, I'd filled in for him on something the year before because uh, during the Olympics, I shot for him for like three days and he liked what I did. And oh, wow. But it was still like a show I, could, I couldn't really, I couldn't really make that my own. And plus I'm working right. with the entire crew that I don't know that I'm trying to get into their rhythm. And, uh, and I work quite differently than Tom. Like I, Tom does incredible work, but like the way our methods are a little bit different. So I'm adapting to his crew. And so was, there was a lot of like sort of catching up to do that for that. So it's, it wasn't quite me, you know, getting to um, like have the kind of authorship that I, or the you know responsibility that like the showrunner gave me on, uh, on the killing, for example, where, you know, I took over from my friend Peter after the first season then, and made it more my own, but it's a great show. Like, I mean, I, I, there's some stuff in the second season where emotionally, like I remember when the moment where, um, where Anator sees that, you know, and they have this discovery of this, you know, people have, are from the other universe and she looks up and notice that, that, um, that, uh, what's his name now? Josh Jackson's character's name. Who oh, I forgot. Peter. Peter. Yeah. When Peter's from the other side and he doesn't know. And I was like, what a great twist. Like what a great, and I was like, okay, this could be really be interesting now. Cause now this whole, it's a mystery because now why don't she's realizing that maybe she's going to fall in love with him. And also he doesn't know. And that Walter's keeping the secret from him, which is a horrible thing. And, and it became much more about the characters, which came way more interesting wise. Um, and so I, when, when Tom asked me to, he's like, yeah, can you come and do a few episodes till Moxie comes back? But yeah, I'd love to. Cause I mean, what I saw last year was like, this could be really fantastic. This is really, really clever. And they, you know, they're such great actors. I mean, what an amazing um, yeah. collect collection of, you know, a, a wonderful collection of voices 
and tones, right? Between, between Anna and Josh. And then like, you have like Lance Reddick and, you know, and, and incredible Walter Bishop, like just listening to them and scenes together. There's such an interesting dynamic of the characters, even though there's a lot of, you know, sci-fi talk, you know, and that kind of yeah. stuff. It was, yeah, it was really, it was really amazing part, thing to be part of for sure. Yeah. That, uh, it was funny because me and my girlfriend both loved that show and we were, uh, I only have the first season on Blu-ray, but we were like getting back to it. And I was like, oh yeah. And then we kind of fell off for a minute, you know, work or whatever. But when I was looking you up and I saw Fringe season three, I was like, which one was that? And I looked at a few episodes and all of that came back like, oh yeah, yeah. there's all of those story points came back. And I was like, yeah. that show was way better than I remember. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember loving it, but it just, all of that had escaped me since the, uh, the show had come out. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's quite that, that. Yeah, that's sort of like, again, that's weird, like, I mean, because that was 2011, I guess, right? So it's up to be yeah. ways now. And then suddenly being this, like, and now this other, ver- like, the idea of, like, parallel universe and stuff. There's a lot of that going on right now, right, with the Marvel Universe and multiverses and different versions of characters. And, um, I mean, it's a bit of a sci-fi trope, and it's been done many times before. But, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, from a story standpoint, from a dramatic standpoint, it was, it was a very rich idea. And it was, I think, I think I remember Anna discussing with me once about it was some like I think the cast had pushed for that. Like she had pushed for that specifically about like let's just trigger out a way to make these things about us more in terms of like it's not just you know weird fringe thing of the week like connect it to the characters. Not the X Files, yeah, yeah. And I think that was really smart. I think that was uh, yeah because that also makes it for it makes again it makes when you're doing scenes like when you're blocking a scene, but you're thinking more about the journey for what this means for the characters. It's not just about showing up and like interviewing somebody and you know blah 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 and just like yep i think that's the information we move on right right the scenes can have turns in them right because there's secrets between characters and revelations and stuff which can make the drama more interesting yeah you know i i had forgotten that i had actually watched continuum as well oh yeah and i i went to try to get it like just buy it on amazon oh yeah physical media thing dude each season costs like 150 dollars oh my god they the i guess the discs just don't exist Physical media is not is not going away, I think, because there's we're now realizing there's a bit of even if I want to try and find certain things for reference, like to discuss with a director, it's like you just can't get stuff to some things. It just falls off. It falls off into the ether and it just doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's a bigger reason to make sure you have some physical media of the things you really love. Um, yeah. And I'm a, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Continuum. It's like one of my one of my one of my friends that uh, I grew up with is the creator of that show, Simon Barry. So he was like, we were the ones making stu- stu- uh, Super 8 films together as kids. As, uh, oh, and wow. so I'm a heaper, super proud of, the, of him for that show and the work he's done. He's a brilliant writer and, and, uh, I can't say enough about him. And it was a, it was a fun thing to get to do. I did two episodes with, um, uh, with like Will Waring was my director and it's just really fun to contribute and, and be part of that. Yeah. Well, like I will say, luckily you can get the first season was $35 on Blu-ray, but yeah, yeah all the other yeah. seasons. I, I was trying to find discs of the killing and I can't find the Blu-rays anywhere. They only exist in other, in other, um, in the other uh, regions, not in North American region. Well, right? if you get it on Blu-ray, I think Blu-ray is region free. No, I, I mean, I can't. No, 4K. 4K Blu-rays are region free. Yeah, but I can't see. There's no, the killing, it doesn't exist on any any North American. Apart from season one, there's no discs available, which is like, an, I'm, I'm going to find them somewhere or figure something out. Because, I mean, they're on, now that Disney owns Fox, like here in, like in Canada, you can, it's on Canada, it's actually on Disney because it's, because uh, all the Fox oh, material is on on Disney here. Cause one of the few things where they didn't have a Hulu deal or something like that. So the Fox stuff can all be on Disney here, but in other parts of the world, it's not, but, but I mean, eventually that might get taken off. Right. Then that show will just disappear, which would be it's, very sad for me. I, uh, yeah, long ago I started buying records like vinyl records. Cause it, it was a little bit of hipster niche, <laughs> hipstery niche 
Oh my God. Of me. Anyway. <laughs> um, but it also like certain albums definitely were mastered better than others. Like there's like, uh, as an example, sound, uh, sound and color, mm-hmm. um, is an amazing sounding album on record that, you know, com- when it's compressed into CDs. And, but especially over the pandemic, I started snatching up every Blu-ray. Yeah. I could, cause I could just feel yeah, the, I know. Uh, I'm the regretting. losses coming. I think that that's, that collection is worthy. And they also stand up that the Blu-ray encoding is quite good. That I mean, most people have like 4K televisions now, but they like they still look really good. Like, I mean, I've, I compare the files. This is a really interesting off topic thing for cinematography, but the files it's you can see depending topic. on. It's all related. Yeah. It's like the, but like the, what you see or the file you're watching for something. Cause now I've got, let's say a 4K Apple file for a movie and I've also got it on Blu-ray. Right. And even though the 4K one technically is higher res, everything else the sound will be better on the Blu-ray and in some ways yep. the color will be better on the Blu-ray. Right. And even though it's upscaling it from, you know, the 1080 P into my 4k TV, it'll still look better in some ways than the compressed file from the Apple thing in the same way that, you know, Disney's uh, particular streaming there, what they've done with their particular stream looks at a little bit more color and contrast than a lot of others. And in some ways can be better than sometimes the copies I get on like a, just another file you buy it on Amazon, something like that. And like right. so the killing looks great. Like it looks better than some of the other files I've seen. Like I used to like on AMCs, like all pixelated and all gray and mushy. And, and the show, the show looks fantastic. Like their particular algorithm that they're using for their, like their stream, whatever, you know, magic voodoo they're using. It's like mostly, mostly makes those stuff look really, really good and everything on that service. Moon Knight like definitely felt like a singular, I mean, it's this, it's just Muhammad directing the whole thing, right? Uh, no, there's two other, uh, originally Muhammad and I were going to be the only uh, director DP pair on it. And, um, but they'd learned, I think Marvel had learned on the last couple, like this was their, their fifth show they'd done is that for some of them, it's just too much work for the director to, to prep sure. six, the six one hour time, especially also cause the like each episode is like a movie in our show, right? Like you're, I mean, it's in different genres. We're in the desert. Like you're in a tune, like there's a lot of like film style prep to these things. So they decided to sort of to split it up and to give them, um, two episodes to another, another director in which they hired Justin Aaron and, and um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Uh, and so that, which was actually kind of, which actually I think worked out really well. Cause even at the beginning, I was like, no, no, no. And he's like, Greg, I'm so glad now I'm not doing all of them. Because yeah. like, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, by the time we were trying to do episode five and six near the end, I mean, we're all like wiped out and sure. uh, you know, and four was, you know, quite a bit of work as well. Originally, that whole end of four, when it, it goes in the asylum, that was usually the beginning of episode five. But breaking the script for five was realizing, you know what? Four had too much travelogue and too much the desert stuff. Like, cut that out, move that up earlier, leave room, more room in five for the journey. Because five was, like, quite a big episode. And and so you're figuring all that on the fly. And I think that was, at that point, it was really great to have, you know, other creative voices in there to, to, to you know, to shoulder some of that burden and to totally. um, and to work that out. You actually uh, kind of pinged me off to like a, a two-parter. Um, the first part being how, because I, you know, in Game of Thrones, you're juggling a ton of uh, DPs and directors and whatnot as well. Yeah, yeah. On, how like you, on, te- on the ten episode season, there would be five pairs, like five ten episodes. We'd each do two episodes each. Yeah. And, so and how do you fu- keep how do you keep consistent? How do you keep the look consistent between all of you? I'm, on so, Moon Knight, it was I assume it was easier because there was only two of you but yeah and also in moon Knight, we were sort of making our look right so it was uh in which case like i started before everyone else those guys uh bef- in moon Knight, i started before andrew because originally i was hired there were there wasn't going to be only the one team um and so i had some specific ideas i wanted to just a few things like one of the 
basics thing. It's like, you know, amount of contrast, dark, using darkness, things like that. Um, Muhammad was a big fan of, of doing some continuous shots a lot and not, you know, trying to build things into a shot uh, and not do a lot of inserts. Um, Marvel does like a lot of coverage. It's not a very cutty show. Yeah. And I think we fought to get that. I think there's, there's, uh, you know, with a, something where the script is it's a bit more fluid and in many drafts as we were shooting, and I know Marvel does like to have some coverage, like any, like any, even like anyone in TV, like even on Thrones, but we would do quite a bit of coverage, me and Jeremy, which, which, you know, can take a lot more time, but David and Dan, if they're realizing, Hey man, that's seen seven minutes, I gotta, I gotta make it five, you know, then they can do it. Cause if we get good performances and all the coverage that they can tweak their scene and, and post as, just as writers, you know, their ultimate showrunner, your ultimate directors on TV series are the showrunners. In this case, in the Marvel case, the ultimate showrunners are going to be doing the putting the final polish are going to be, you know, the, the top four at Marvel. They're the ones that are sort of like the ultimate showrunners of the whole MCU. So like they will they sort of take that showrunner role at the very end. And it's good to it's good for them to have some options. And they've learned it's like we just want some coverage sometimes because we just want, you know, we want the options to do that. And um, and so we tried to give that to them when we could. But we also tried to not make it so we don't have coverage all the time that's the same and like the same style of shot and we just don't want it to be because the dangers then it could just become all you know all very visually very similar and 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 right. too cutty so we were trying to be smart about how we gave them that um but look wise you know there's more contrast we had some other ideas about color things like that and with the, with just me and andrew working together sort of like to get on the same page like that's the one thing we also work with the same crew obviously which right. is the same on throne you've been the same the same and of course on thrones you have two main units you have two different sets of camera operators and, and gaffers and things like that um but also the show is usually colored by one person and that's a big factor on game of thrones with that joe finley would be the only colorist right and so you know he would and even if, if let's say myself and let the two other dps they might we might treat the camera a bit differently in terms of exposure typically sometimes um and so he would be able to even that up very easily and he would develop like presets for well, he would want to be exposed and I ended up kind of doing something a bit more like him and we built some new viewing lets actually me and Joe for the for Thrones it helped me because the first year I was wearing like okay what am I going to look at on set because he had some he had some very particular things he did how he treated the Alexa footage which really was in quite a big part of the look it just had to just how we sort of would bend the curve a little bit and once mm. I colored my first few episodes with him I realized well this is okay now I get it now I know why what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing and now it I want to build me a viewing light on set a bit like your sort of base setup a little bit. So that way I'll, I'll be able to light more specifically to get where you want. And then it just made his job even easier by the time we get that. So it's a question right. of doing that sort of thing. But that's a big part of continuity is your colorist. Um, and the other thing is, it's like in a weird way, like you just sort of, you know, Thrones is different because I joined season five. There's four seasons of material to look at, right? And the look from season one to season two, it's a pretty big difference, right? If you watch sure. the show, like we have, we have, you know, I mean, Tom Gates would be like, oh yeah, great. We used to have like 200 park hands up all in these sets for these ridiculous, super hard backlights everywhere, right? And then, and then the sky in, panel came out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, not even that. Then the next season, I think it would be Kramer and Jonathan Freeman would be like, now it's like, take all those down. Now it's like 120 K of the window when we're doing a lot of like, or softer fill light and, and resimplifying stuff. And also like, how do we get the lighting budget down? And I think it was Kramer was like, yeah, throw everything small in a 5k, throw away. <laughs> wow. Simple, simple thing. But also it was kind of made sense. So like bigger sources became more natural look and like more bending into a, and now it's like, okay, more window candle, you know, more of the sort of Rembrandt sort of style. Uh, and that, that they, that they sort of like began to develop in season two which is also something I you know, visually I quite like and seem to make a lot of sense for the story. So in that case, we all watch the material, right? So then like all of us who just joined the show were like, well, there's plenty of things to look at. And also all the directors, they did a great thing where they made a little screenshot book. You had like a, 
little book oh, flip book of like all of the episodes had like a single shot from each scene which was a helpful way just to like instead of having to watch the episode like oh right what did the what did the great hall look like in this scene you know in this kind of context and you sort of see all the various looks they've done but the flip side that gives you sort of like a general feel for the palette like i'm not going to do something that won't fit into this look but also you don't want to just imitate that because you're you're trying to come up with a look for your scene that makes sense for your like for your flow of the story so then it but it's now you're trying to basically you know create something that's the right mood, but you want some to fit within the palette of the rest of the show, right? And so that was something that, you know, Andrew and I would sort of begin on Moon Knight, like, well, I, I want a certain amount of contrast and a certain amount of them. We'd have built a viewing lot with a lot more contrast than Marvel was used to, which we really, you know, I really pushed them on. And they were a bit, you know, I remember the post guys were like, well, I'm not too sure. And then once we started looking that lot on the other material, like, oh, no, this looks great. Like, good, okay, good. So we're in the right ballpark. Right. and. Because we're like, you know, it's also, I'm fit, again, fitting into their universe, right? So we wanted to be, you know, unique in our own way, but not so far out there. It wants to look different than their other shows, but not like, you know, so different that they're going to they're gonna be tempted to like, you know, undo this type of look right. and then, you know, do it else. And so it had to be fit our material. Like, in our, you know, we start with episode one with a bit of a horror show, right? With Steve being haunted by Khonshu. And then, then we have a travelogue thing, right? We end up in like the desert in episode three and four. And you've got, you know, sort of Lawrence Arabia style stuff. And we've got, you know, there's a lot of different genres and worlds in it. So we want, but a lot of them felt like they, they could handle like a, a, a more contrast and some more darkness in the image. And also using darkness as a way to hide things, right? Like areas where there is no detail, things like that sometimes, which is kind of unusual for their stuff. It doesn't have too much of that. Most of the Marvel stuff has a lot of, like can sort of see through everything to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. So we, that could be different for us, but we felt we had license to do that with the big psychological element we were dealing with. Um, and so there was, and then it was like a color palette thing. And like, what colors you want to use? And, and, um, and we picked a certain color for some gold things, which became a gold was like in various parts of the thing. It's in both the chamber of the gods. It was in the, it was in the, uh, the, the pyramids, you know, at Mogart's. And then it was like, oh, we can, and I think we we're in the tomb stuff. Like, you know, Andrew used it in the tomb for the, the tomb of, um, um, Alexander the Great, right? It's like, oh yeah, that color could work. And then which, which is also a way of leaning into our more bigger, underlying concept that like perhaps everything's in his imagination right so it's like then the idea of repeating some colors that like actually will help us with this sort of overall theme and palette of like yeah because then like red can pop out i realize okay i can use red to the restaurant then red and gold right. there because i can use red and gold and mogar it's like this if this is all in steven's imagination then you know how you pull things out from that because there were a lot of things with that visually too with the things in this is fish tank at the beginning and in, in is um in his apartment, right? Like if you look at the fish tank right at the beginning, it's basically a layout of what's in the Duat later. You've got literally the miniature of the barge in there and the gates of Osiris right. and stuff. And then, cause that's like his idea of what that would look like is as Tauret says in episode five, these things be made out of stuff of your imagination in the, in the asylum, for example. And, but also maybe it's all in his imagination anyway. So maybe the things he would have, you know what I mean? That, all that sort of idea. Uh, and Muhammad really encouraged us to use a lot of color as well. Like after a while in the, the scene in um in episode three where in the on the uh, Faluka going on the Nile. This I mean all those references are tons of neon colors and like, okay, well it's gonna go yeah. really, really crazy with the blues and the purples. And then I'm like, well, I'm gonna use some scarlet type color, you know, coming from her side, her being gonna eventually become the scarlet scarab and like hint at that color and have him being lit with like her color in the reverse and and just but also do it really saturated wise, which also made her look really lovely and it's sort of a lot of things like that. And it's like a building process. So we're like, we just talk about these things like Andrew and I and like, hey, I'm going to try this now or I'll try that now. Or when you're you're sharing sets together, it's like, I'm going to add this. I'm, I don't, I might not use all of this, but I'm having this in case I have to change something. And 
that's something that's really fun when you work with another DP if you can it's like you have different ways of solving problems but you know when you're doing a set you're like I have to think about not just if I'm if I'm starting the new set like even on Thrones it's up to me to sort of design what I need for it but I want to be mindful of like also who's coming after me right and then talk to them about like what do you need like I'm going to do this but is that okay if I leave this here or you know you have to sort it's of like because you're, you're sort of all doing a team game right like you want to also, if the, if I know they're going to do something specific for them that's really important look-wise, I, I, I don't do the same thing, right? So if I'm first, I kind of get first dibs on it, but also I don't want to ruin what they're doing, right? If it's something that's really important. So it's sort of all work like, together in that, you know? It's like building a workshop. Like I try to either a workshop or, or, or putting a case together or something like that, like an equipment case. I always try to make it so that someone would know experience of my workflow to <laughs> open the doors and go like, yes. all right, I, I got it. You know, I, as, I can figure this out. As they say in the army built for the average soldier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like a, a bomb proof or just like, Oh, you know, it's fine. Cause I mean, there's, I mean, one of the things I love about like, let's say on, on Thrones, for example, there's like a couple of, there's a couple of like nightmare sets we've had or, or difficult ones. I remember one that was like the tree of like the, which we was rebuilt the tree for um where the red Raven was. Right. And I was like, that was so, I had a really tough day in there. I had to do this thing and also in this hallway. And it was, we went, it was a really, I fell way behind. And I finally realized like, well, what I should have done with the top light over, over Max one side. I was like, you know what? And I was, and, and that was going after me and said, okay, look, I did this. But I've realized this is the thing I should, like, there's one more piece to this to make this really good. I tried to try this. And she's like, yeah, thanks so much. Right. Cause then she's like, cause she's coming in without even less time. And so she's going right. to use a lot of what I've done, but I've now I'm like, oh, if I could keep going, this is what I, you know, I fixed it and post a little bit with, with Joe's help, but um, that kind of stuff. Great. Or if I'm in the, I was in the first in the great hall, I think in the, in one season, right. Within in the Winterfell hall, which got a certain type of look. And I, you know, I'm like, well, I want to add this one thing. And Tom's like, yeah, we thought about doing that. So we'll add that this year. And it'd be looking down the hallway. There'd be like a little window. And I, and not that they would just leave that. Right. And think Annette or someone else like that. And that hallway looked great. I just left all that. It's like one th- less thing to do or just a bit of the background. Because when you get into these bigger sets, like you're you're not starting on a show like that. Like, oh, now how should I start lighting the Great Hall? It's like, no, it's like crew call, blocking 15 minutes before. We should be shooting an hour afterwards. So all I'm really lighting in is like the shots of the scene or I'm adapting what I've what we've pre-lit to, to get shooting, right? So the, the hard work of like what's out each window or what's down the end of the hallway, that all needs to be done beforehand. And if you're doing it with it again, another DP afterwards, like, yeah, this is what I've got doing. And they're like, great, I can be great. I can leave that. I can worry about my part of the scene here. I mean, uh, I mean, I, th- I think I told this story before, but Jonathan Freeman and I both had uh, scenes in Jon Snow's office in the seventh season where the windows are closed, right? And the whole set was, mm. it's like super dark charcoal walls. The whole look event was made for the first season with like windows open, beam of sun, like that's how you make the room look good. It's like, well, happens to be reflecting it, off the desk. You yeah. Know? <laughs> or, yeah. It, it creates some contrast, a, easy, a key light, you know, where the key can be um, for the sort of simpler, you know, side lighting that would happen with that kind of thing. And so it's like, what do you mean? Like all the windows are closed. And I'm like, oh, Christ. And John was like, <laughs> how the f- how the fuck are we going to do this? Like, like he had a, we both had a, you know, substantial um, page count scenes in there. And we didn't want to do it all firelight too. It felt wrong for it all to be like all firelight. Like how do you, and also it's a small room. It's like a fireplace you can hide. It'd be, tr- it's tricky to, it's not a big, it's not a big room. So we, you know, we, I did some experiments with like widening the gap between the, um, the shutters. right. So if you looked at them from an angle, you could just see a little bit of hot, like daylight, right. Or through the thing, even hot, you know, snow light or whatever. And right. that, that, like, well, you know, if I have that in the shot, I, I can believably make some cooler, 
light from that side, right? It looks like, like, you know, if you draw the sheets closed and you've got like a little, or the blinds closed, you get a little bit hot at the bottom, that sort of idea in a, in a room with, let's say, blinds. And I realized, okay, maybe that's what I could be doing. So I did some tests and stuff and John's like, okay, good. That's, that looks like it's like, you proved it can work. Now it's like, I got somewhere to start, right? Cause for him, you know, he had a, he also had a very big complicated scene and, and he managed to get his stuff st- staged by the window, which actually really helped. And this, this scene's really lovely. Um, but it's like that with the two of us together, just like scratching our heads, like this is not something this set was ever supposed to you know, be made right. for. But we have to come out. And then I realized, oh, if I do these profiles now, I can make them really dark. Like I can make like just like this weird thing where it's just this beautiful silhouette of Sophie and and the little finger. And I just make it like, which then it was like an interesting way to, to sort of like wonder what they're thinking and using darkness as this sort of like now it's like a compositional element because I'm literally just looking at a lined face and just like a bunch of like negative space. So right. all these ideas kind of came out of that idea anyway, and it was kind of a originally would look like it's going to be a torturous nightmare. That was like, how can I make this thing not look terrible and not um, do that? It turned out to be kind of like it turned out. It's one of my favorite scenes I shot that year, and and uh, but it was great to do that with someone else together, right? Like it's not like yeah, I made it look all one way. We were both like, okay, what will work? Okay, this look will work if I can figure this out. It seemed appropriate for. Um, you know, it fits into the world of the show, but it was a way to actually make the scene a bit, a bit kind of creepier and, and made, made Sophie feel more lonely in that scene, which is part of the game of like that scene is, is Littlefinger manipulating her or not, right? Is she, and it's like this whole idea of like convincing her that might be, maybe Arya's going to turn on her or whatever and, and the usual, you know, game of that. So it worked out, you know, worked out well. Yeah. You know, uh, you had, this, I'm going to add like a, a part B to the, question because you mentioned the colorist a few times mm-hmm. and I, uh, over the pandemic, I ended up, I wouldn't say becoming a colorist, but I I've colored a handful of product, you know, a few indie features and a documentary oh, great. and stuff. What, what, what uh, kind of, what's, what platform did you use? Resolve. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, I got the little, I kind of, because I write for pro video coalition, I, uh, I hit, I reached out to black magic. I was like, Hey, can I review one of those panels? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. do you sure. just want to take the two? So I, so in my review, I used it to color two projects. <laughs> Nice. And then I was like, yeah, I do need this. I will buy it. Um, that's but, a great uh, way to, but that's a great way to, you know, to review it's, it. You know, it's a better way is to actually have to use it on something. Yeah. Well, and also, um, as a DP be, being doing color work made my DP, you know, in the same way that editing can make you a better DP or a director, like yeah. coloring definitely, um, was educational. And I'm trying to coax out of anyone I can, like, what is it that your colorists are doing in the grade that are really helping um, get that professional look because certainly uh, you can do a lot of things in the grade, especially with how robust the mm-hmm. negatives are, quote unquote negative. Uh, you know, you're shooting Ari raw or whatever red code. You can push that image everywhere. Yeah. So um, what is it? It's easy to say we make it look filmic, but like what are you kind of doing specifically in the grade that are making things look professional like that? So especially on something like Moon Knight or Watchmen too. Watchmen looks fantastic. Yeah, that was yeah, that was uh yeah, and that was Todd Bachner that did um that did uh Watchmen with me. And like I mean I mean for me a big I mean the colors is a big part of the finishing of the show. It's a bit for me it's now they're a big part of the cinematography team, right? Because it's not something that um you know, I'm finishing the photography, but more importantly, with the the way the flow is now, I need an onset monitor that looks somewhere near what I want it to look like. Because right. there, everyone's going everyone's to be married to that. In the same way, I want the dailies to be very close to what I would like the scene, at least at the time, to look like. Because that's what everyone will be staring at in the edit room. And then they're going to show everybody else. And 
uh, I mean, on the remember on the Watchmen pilot, for example, they like they you know they shot the pilot, and then you know Andre was off doing something else, and they literally just told Todd, yeah, just put this thing on there and do it, and he is like got no notes from anybody, and it was like all oh, basically Rec Seven Hundred Nine. I'm like, this is just not what I what we want at all, and he's like, yeah, it was disaster. Like they didn't let me do anything, and also. You know, and I said, that's what they showed HBO. It's like, that's like a travesty. Oh, He's no. like, yeah, I know. And like, and he didn't have any support at the time to like do it. Cause it was, you know, that's just how the process was at the time. This is not what aired, obviously. This is just, you know, before they started doing the series. So I was like, right. well, let's back up again. And I want to come up with a palette with, um, you know, the production designer and, and work on something like that. So, cause building a sort of viewing lets a very important step in that process. And uh, as I said, I think before, like that was, on thrones getting joe to start building me getting me specifically some lets that were closer to kind of his because he may also when he's when for example like on a series even with what the watchman and everything else it's not like a feature film they don't have three weeks to do in one hour right like they're right. They'll, they'll go in there they'll it's like it's a very quick process like i only get one day in the suite with uh with a colorist for any show <laughs> so uh at that point they've done like you know the bulk of the work based on my notes and what they want you know what they think the show will look like and i'm I'm still helping polish or just making some corrections and making some overall things or some fixes I haven't um, that he hasn't they haven't noticed I want to do. So building a viewing that was very important and that really helped on Thrones a huge amount because, like I say, because of certain specific things Joe was doing to sort of like the way the armor jumps out in in um, in, uh, uh, in Thrones like you see like a lot of, like the sky and stuff like that. There's incre- there's a lot of saturation in the show and a lot of contrast, but it doesn't look. Um, it never looks electronic, right? Like, he, you know, when mm-hmm. you put that much saturation in, you do have to bend certain colors away from it that will get out of control sometimes, even and, with the Alexa. And pull brightness out. Yeah, like pull brightness out and pull, like, he would, so a lot of contrast. And so there was a certain amount of a blue uh, skew and green suppression he would do that was like, I mean, I'm, I can't specify the magic sauce because one, I couldn't describe mm-hmm. it. And also, sure. it's also something he's very proud of his own. Like, I mean, that's also part of the, art he brought to was like, I'm going to figure out how to do something this, that that's going to give a unique thing to this and, and also provide me with a great start that I can do scene to scene. in. so, because when he's doing something, it's if, if it's exposed fairly well, he'll have, I can start here. And then he's like 80% there. Right. And right. like, so that like he'd built, would build that he'd like maybe two or three versions of that or whatever. Um, and that allows him to spend the time for the finesse. And he's, he's not like starting from like, starting from the log. Okay. I'm mean, like, he can't do that in every yeah. scene, right? We're doing a show that quickly. So, and, and that's a big thing about and So the idea of, if I can get something like that, that he starts with as a viewing lut ish in that case, then I want, in the case of, of Watchmen, I'm building something that I, that I want in terms of a viewing lut. Like I'm designing more from the, the ground up in terms of that. Cause it's not just something that exists so far. And that's the first step. And then, then I know that we'll get pretty close. And if I can make the dailies look pretty close to that, and then, you know, in this case of Travis that was that colored Moon Knight, like we know he's pretty great. And he was he was very, very flattered with the flattering for the photography that Andrew and I did because he was for him was like, wow, this stuff looks it's almost like it's done. Like, I mean, he's not having to go from ground up and go like turn day to night and like because right. uh, you know, both him and I, like, I mean, more of coming from a film school film, like a more of a feature film style of like like lighting wise. Like I want I want it all in the camera as much as possible. And I I'll say the things I need to fix later, but from Travis's standpoint, and he's been on a lot of shows where like they just don't have the time like that, and it's like you're starting from scratch, kind of like now I got to build more. You know, scenes are all over the place. You're just changing stuff between the scenes. Whereas we were, Andrew and I were quite consistent. We have very similar tastes, um, like anything, say different methods at times. But we we had an idea where we wanted to get to, and the daily stuff were like, wow, we're really we're. I mean, now it's like too few things. I think the thing that in terms of like the the general taste things are. 
if I can see some electron, what I, in my, in my mind is like a sort of electronic treatment of colors or see stuff that's a bit too, if I see a lot of color in the blacks that I find mm. really tricky because then it bumps between scenes. Like, you know, I've, for, for me, the standard, like if the blacks are a consistent, like, you know, neutral non-color and a lot of the whites have the same way. If you, if you contaminate those two things, I find it's very easy for it to feel like, like you're watching like traffic or something, right? Where everything's like a, mm. has a, has a hint, like a, a hue on the whole thing. I find, I find that if you, if you have a hue and without a lot of color contrast, I find your brain tunes it out after a while. In this case, the sort of idea of this palette kind of gets neutralized in people's uh, brains, right? It kind of goes away unless you're going back and forth a lot. So I try and generally stay away from like an overall hue because I find that that just one gets tuned out and it, it eliminates the ability to have the feeling of it. If you can have some color contrast within the scenes, then you can, then you're the people notice the color. Do you know what I mean? If you've got like cool light on a person, you got something in the background that's not, then you can, you'll notice the cool light. If the entire scene is cool, eventually it'll all start looking gray to them. Right? Like this is right. how our brains work. Right. Cause our brains, uh, you know, it's like anything, right. You acclimatize to what's there. So I think using more color contrast within shots or having some contrast, I think is for me, something that's pretty important. And so a, a grade that will make sure that that's possible. I think it's for me is very important and like whatever contrast range and gamma stuff you do, because I think that's what allows you to uh, have some, have some use of those uh, other tools, right. To use the whole spectrum of things. You need the audience's eye to be able to have that. And if it's all one color, then you would literally, I mean, unless you're going to like a red light room or something like that, you don't, you right. don't need something else to remind you it's red, but the, but it can too easily just like get tuned out. So if I have anything like the last, you know, few years I've been more keen. And I think that's also what Joe was doing, right? Joe let for a lot of saturation and all, it did two things. One, it kept like the green from getting too electronic, right? Cause the green trees right. and too much. But if you looked at the armor, like the, the colors, like I've let the, let's say, like the armor will have like a, a, a patina to it of a certain thing, right? But it'd be kind of reflective a lot, unless you Brienne's arm or something like that. But you will see the color of the sky in it, right? Cause there's a lot of saturations. The blue will still read through, which suddenly gives, now the armor's got like three things going on. It's got like a white sky. It's got some blue. It's got the brown of the patina. So you now like a lot, and it has dimension. Like suddenly it's mm. like, it really jumps off the screen. And then you realize like the next to skin tone, it's great. And cause there's a coolness to the shoulders and the thing. And so you have all these like layers of color, you know, in this image. And, you know, what's interesting thing about Thrones was the costume designer, and uh, especially at the beginning of the show and, and everyone else, they're very smart to like in a shot like this, so a lot of the show is like, you know, 40 mil, this kind of size, you needed to be able to know everything about this character, which means there was a sigil of some type for their their house, right? Because right. if you didn't know, I mean, there's so many clans at the beginning of the, you, the first show, you're like, I'm, who's who? Like, who the hell? Like, <laughs> but, you know, you start to see that like everyone's got their own kind of color scheme and it's all in shots like this and there's a little sigil. So you start paying attention, like, but that, but they... The Harry Potter the, effect of every, cl- yeah. every uh, clan like, having you know, their own color. Yeah, like their own color or like, you know, like a uh, little finger has a little bird, that kind of stuff. Or, the, you know, there's always a, there's a, there's a wolf and Jon Snow at the top of his breastplate. And the, but the, then I think, I think when a big part of, I might ask Joe about this at the beginning, he said, well, the one thing is he needs all this stuff to really pop, right? Because it's yeah. like, I, people don't, you don't want them to miss this because eventually they'll start realizing, oh yeah, right. He's got the wolf. That's great. So he's part of the Starks, right? Okay, good. Um, and so he needs that stuff to really pop out. And the designers are very good about using, you know, some color contrast in that. But Joe was like, I need to make sure this stuff really jumps off the screen. Uh, and that was a, bit, a part of, I think, his initial, like, you know, uh, concept of how he was doing that. So for me, having the ability to have color contrast is really, really important. 
um, as far as like that range and and then also just like where you play the brightness. I mean, we have a whole another range now with HDR, which is a whole another world. It's like right, you know, uh, we're just getting to grips with now a little bit. I think right, this is the first H- the second HDR finish thing I've done. Um, and we had an HDR monitor on set finally, but it was just still a studio monitor because there isn't really a, a location monitor that can actually right. show the full is it range. One of the Canon ones or a Sony one? No, it was uh, oh, I'm trying to remember now. Oh, no, the, no, the Canon ones couldn't quite really show the whole range. It just wouldn't, couldn't show oh, the blacks. And so you had like two modes you had to use, but I can't go back and forth when I'm, you know, I don't have time right. to do that. But I'm trying to remember which one it was now. I don't have to look it up. And it was a, he was a humongous studio monitor. It was like a 35,000 euro, like, you know, oh, <laughs> monitor. It was like this thick and this big. It's a CRT one, but. Or Flanders, maybe. Oh, it was um, a CRT. Goodness. That was oh, yeah. probably, probably Sony then. I think it might have been anyway, but the, but when, you know, with the beginning of like, you know, in the, in the scope of the moonlight, moonlight post process, like the thing is they, you know, of them, cause this is all, this is part of also Marvel also beginning to understand how how to make a six part show as good as the quality of their movies for a third of the money in half in like a third of the time. Right. So, right. um, And I prefer the next question. (laughs) Oh yeah. So, but in post, right. The first couple shows, they did not have an HD monitor on set. And you know, when SDR, one of the big things that happens between the two, as you know, is like, there's more detail in the highlights. Well, if the window behind you is now blowing out, for example, and you're tired of the thing there a little bit. And if we're doing that and I'm fine with that for, you know, with a little part of the scene I'm on, but, and that'll, but that blur, that blown out level will be different in HDR and SDR, even depending on where you sit it. So if there's things out there, which are gone in the SDR, they'll suddenly reappear in the HDR. And right. that became things in there. So they're the first cup, first show. I think they're like, okay, we have to not do this because now, you know, when the, in the post pipeline, like the delivery, by the time they're noticing this, the effects are being put in. It's like right at the very end. And it's a huge nightmare to fit, get to add suddenly more things to fix. So they're like, okay, well, how do we get, we don't want to prevent this problem. So we need to have an HDR monitor on set. Well, then it's like, what can really do it? Only a studio monitor. You know, the, I think the DIT on WandaVision, like he bought one, like they like, but it's like super expensive and they don't handle the heat. And they're really, we generally right. d- didn't take them out of the studio. Like they didn't go to Jordan. I didn't bring them to Jordan in the desert, right. but they, but that was a way for them to kind of like the beginning of their process of how do we cut, how do we cut down on this problem? We don't want to be surprised later. So it gave me in a way like, hey, if I want to blow out, well, one, I don't care if I see a bit detail, but I don't want to, you know, see stand there a traffic cone or like, you know, the kind of stuff in SDR that it might just disappear. Uh, and that, that, you know, that helped solve that, that initial part of it because they, their post pipeline is very, very compressed, right. Compared to what they're used to doing. And, right. you know, the VFX are all coming at the end part. And, and like I said, like in the TV thing, the showrunners are the last people to really, you know, um, have a touch on it. So the last people will be like, you know, Kevin and Victoria and, and all the, the top people in Marvel. And, and, and as it should be, but they don't want to be suddenly dealing with extra problems that will only show up in that last couple of weeks. And so uh, I think for us, like our show got colored really well and uh, and Travis and all the people that coordinated that like Morningstar and everybody were really wonderful. And they, they, you know, we, we headed off a lot of those problems early. So we got a really got a, I think we got a really nice grade and Travis did a beautiful job, you know, yeah. because we, Andrew and I put a lot of effort into making it as, as good as possible going into that process. Um, that we would, we didn't have too many like sudden problems, like, Ooh, like, you know, like, oops, I didn't expect that. Like, you know, so deal with just the normal things. Yeah. You know, uh, that was actually one thing that I was going to ask like right up front, but, um, I'm glad we're getting to it now. Uh, Marvel has kept all of their films and shows remarkably consistent, mm-hmm. um, look tone wise, look wise, you know, uh, you can kind of tell when it's a, a Marvel production. Um, 
what are some of the things that they're sort of, I don't want to say mandating, but do you have an inside scoop on kind of how um, they're managing that and kind of what's the mark? Because like when I, I used to work at ABC and all the ABC shows were yeah, pretty yeah. consistent looking, they all had kind of the same uh, simple sort of lighting setups. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to Joanna Coelho. She did the rookie. She was like, the one thing she told me for sure was like everyone, you could, you had to see everyone's both of their yeah, eyes. Oh, yeah. Everyone yeah. had to be, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a little old school TV, None of this. but, um, that's not yeah. allowed. Yeah, no. Um, but yeah, so what is, what is Marvel kind of handing down to you guys? That's like, uh, keeping that consistency and keeping that, um, uh, professional, you know, kind of look, I think all that. Well, I think, I guess, uh, one, well, one thing is when the beginning of the, like, okay, we're going to build a viewing let for the show. I'm like, that's you know what I wanted to do. And well, the first thing is like, well, I guess I'm going to start with, I'm not going to start from scratch. So well, here's just something I used for, an, I made up on the show. It's like, well, let's look at the here's last the continuum lot. <laughs> yeah. I like continuum is not going to work. It's like, or, you know, those shot different cameras, but, uh, but the, um, you know, part of the thing is like, well, what are the LUTs for the other shows? The rather recent show. I also think about the other, because oh. they, of course, have all those, right? And they have a whole, I mean, they have a whole pipe, you know, pipeline. Of course they do. Yeah. I'm like, oh. yeah. I'm, yeah. So, you know, it's good. Yeah. But this is like part of the process, right? I was sort of like, well, I was expecting this. So uh, Mike Maloney, who was the head of color, their color department there. And and he's kind of like Greg. It's And, they, and then those guys were, I mean, I, I can't say enough about how nice these people are. Um Okay, I said, Greg, the, the HG, by the way, the HDR thing is uh, new to us and we've uh, we've had a few bumps. I just want to let you know that it's not perfect yet. And it's like, he's like, he's trying to brace me for, you may be very frustrated with how this is going to go initially, but we're, <laughs> sure. we're working on it. I'm we know, get, we know. We know it's like, I know I'm going to tell you like, so. Um, well, it's like what you said, you know, we're going to do that. I don't know how yet. We'll figure it out. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> we're just getting that. We're, we're, we're getting better at this now. We're on show four or whatever, show five. I'm like, we're just getting there. I'm like, that's no problem, right? It's like, it's a, you know, he was just more like, he's thinking like, oh, to please don't be, you know, so upset when I'm, I, I can't just tell you exactly how all this is going to be done and why I can't deliver to you on, on setting, right. you know, that sort of thing. But we, um, but they were pretty far along as it turns out with trying to figure it out. So uh, so my first thing is like, well, let's let me look at some of the onset LUTs for a few of the shows that are similar in contrast to I think where I want to go or a bit, and then I can start working with those because they were they're like we're not going to let you like come in and like we're not going to well, I'm not going to have a LUT that's going to have a lot of color in the blacks a lot of, like they're not that's not going to happen like that's not going to yeah. fit in their world like we can look at that but they will grade the show somewhere more in the space that they're at which usually involves not a lot of um color in in the highlights or or, or dark areas which yeah. i was fine with i was just wanting for more 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 saturation and more um more uh, more contrast right i didn't want i didn't really want to push that other thing uh and so i looked at a bunch of their other luts right the last couple of things I, I can't remember which ones they were like one of the avengers movies uh the hawkeye LUT, which was a bit more that's probably the most contrasty one they'd had at the time and I was like, okay, good. And I, I want to look at more things. And they had, you know, to one thing they do to evaluate all their things, they have a, they have their own test chart, like a Marvel test chart. I think what do they call it, the Marvel Marcy, which is like basically a oh, whole funny. bunch of like stuff from the palettes of all their shows. It's like toys and poster stuff. And, you know, a lot of stuff that's really like, we're, these are like, I mean, the thing about their brand, their show is like, I mean, Spider-Man's going to look like Spider-Man. So putting right. a, 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 an all orange light is like, that's fine for a scene occasionally, but like, he's still going to look like Spider-Man. So they're not really going to want to watch a show where he's all orange and like either wrong color. And which will mean like for the colors, they're like, well, then what happens is then we're doing that. And then I'm we're rotoing him the entire time. And they were like, and that's like, right. you know, there's one of the big lessons was 
certain characters will look the way they need to look as, as much as possible. Like, you know, Captain America's shield is going to look like that shield. So he, occasionally there could be other light around, but we're not going to suddenly make like, it's not going to, we're not going to let it look green by, by mistake. So there's a lot, there's, and that's why that test chart was very important. Like, so if you throw it on here, how does the test chart look? Are we, are we suddenly building a lot that's going to make all of certain types of colors in the palette of the various costume stuff like be too bent out of whack right and that's just a very, mm. a very smart way to do that and and so our we went for a, quite a neutral one that we're we're building i just went with a lot more contrast and i know they're a bit worried initially it's like that might be too much i'm like well let's put it on the test chart like i mean i i had enough experience with marcy <laughs> well that's then they loved it they're like it looks fantastic it's like because I, I had more experience with like more contrast your lets than they're used to looking at right because they do look that was the one thing too again about what you get used to is as I said earlier, it's like your brain tuned stuff out, right? So they were, and some of the viewing lists were were much flatter than I would ever want for our show um, on uh, on this thing. So it was like there was a lot of them that were quite like flat, just because also they want their big thing is also they want a lot of details. They want to see everything, you know, when they're mm-hmm. in their edit, they don't want things buried. That was you know a big part of um, post processing for them. Uh, seven. Yeah, they don't want to like not know what the hell's in there, right? And and part of it for me is like if I would build a heavier LUT, then the thing is. Like, a, like one that has more dark, no, like more contrast. I know from also my experience on Thrones where like I'll happily make that let fairly like make it heavy, meaning like there'll be a lot of uh, detail in those dark areas, right? You'll be able to dig them if you want, but I don't want them on set to look all murky, right? Because I want to have right. the contrast because that's going to allow me to light to the kind of contrast I want to have in the scene. If I can never make it dark and I have a very flat let, then guess what? I'm going to underexpose everything like crazy because that's what I'm trying to get areas to be dark. So if I want to have you know, a dark area. I want to be able to have some black. I don't, I want to make sure in that black, there's actual detail, even right. though on set on the LUT, it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to give me that darkness, which one does two things. One, it means when they're doing visual effects, it's, you're not like pushing color into where there's no signal, which is what can create a lot of noise. And two, it gives them the confidence of like, Hey, you know what? It's contrasting, but I'm not, you know, I'm not screwing them over the ability to, you know, it is their show in the end, and I don't want them to like lift everything. But I, I want right. to not do it in a way which I'm destroying the image to protect this concept, right? Like it's not. I should win the the argument over the contrast of the scene by like artistic merit, not by forcing it on them and just be like, you, know, like, right. you can't do anything about it now. I've underexposed it so badly. That's yeah. not, I don't. I don't really. I. I mean, I prefer not to work that way. That's not really a a useful, you know, collaborative method with people and. Uh, or with anyone. So so the idea was to build something more contrasty like that that's a lot of detail in it. So then there's a scene in episode one where like um Oscar's in the elevator when he's been he's been chased out of his apartment yeah, by Conchu and he, and he and there's a shot where the door opens and it's like just this window. It's just like a little like the thing and it's just like all black, right? And there's detail in there. Like it's not down to it's not down to nothing and and usable. I mean but uh, but that was the but that was like the whole point was to have a have a shot like that that's possible. Whereas if it had been a much flatter lot, I would never. Then I'd, then I'd be relying on later making that dark, and in the dailies and in the edit, it would have been all murky, right? And I didn't want that. Right. I wanted it to be black. So there was a purpose around that design, and so that that was the big part of that. So basically, using some of the base lists they started, like building from those. Oh, let's start for this one and experimenting. But I couldn't like show up with a new one, and having their test chart was very smart. I mean, that's obviously something that they, because they that's something that you know would come up early on. It's like. Oh shit! Now uh, Spider Man looks wrong. Okay, we got or whatever right. character, like whatever ironic thing. It's like, yeah, we got to make sure we don't do that, right? So, it you know, it's so it's such a no duh thing. But of course, they let each of you like ape each other's luts and stuff. Like 
That's the well, easiest also way. Because in my head, I was like, what? They just make you use Alexas? Is that it? It's like, no. No, no, no. I mean, I, you know, I mean, for me, I, I like for me, I, I picked that camera because I'm also more com- most comfortable with that sensor. And right you know, at the time and like uh, I can't wait to try the new one out, the new smaller, the new new Alexa. I got to goof with it a little. It's it's nice. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, and I, you know, and I, I know a lot of friends of mine that, that really enjoy this, the Venice. I haven't really done a whole show with the Venice. Venice and, is fantastic. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I haven't really worked out like how I would treat the, the onset, the LUTs yet and stuff like that. I haven't, I haven't right. created a whole thing. Anyway, so for me, I was like, well, if we had to use large format, which we did to get the resolution, what they wanted. So we were used them, we used them um, mini LFs, you know, on the show. And, yeah. but I know the sensor more <laughs> easily. So for me, it was a little, like, I know what kind of where I'm starting at with like building a LUT. I kind of, I know if I get into this kind of range exposure wise, I know I can get myself more comfortable with that. I, I meant so much to learn on this show anyways, with, you know, working with Muhammad and the new thing and Marvelous, I didn't really want to throw in a whole new camera at the same right. time. So, um, that, but that uh, was really useful. And also, is oh, great. So, the, nice. uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also the thing is like also with Marvel, like they own those LUTs. It's not like they're, you know, it's not like right. I have to call up Eric Steelberg. Eric, can I have the LUT for, you know, Hawkeye? It's like, no, it's like, trust me, they've got their whole color science department and the hell, it's like they've got them all. Uh, and they were most comfortable if we started with something and, could build something based on a few things they already have. So they're not, they're just don't want to get caught with a, some unknown problem later. Like it's all great, except, right. oh, the purples are always going like now they just don't want to, you know, they want to not have too many complications, unknown complications when they're finishing their shows. So, so what were you, uh, obviously it's different for every scene, but in general, kind of like, what were you lighting to like, what was your key and like, how dark were the shadows getting if you were letting that LUT kind of, Boost the contrast, but I, I, I really, no could, I really, I really yeah. can tell you. I mean, I think. Fair enough. Let's say if uh, if let's say look at the let's look at the non HDR space um, IRE meter kind of like that. If a like if mm. I, I use a like a leader false color thing, it's something that I totally was, um, which is something for me. It's like also start to know what the colors are kind of like that. If I'm in the quickly thing, like a, a skin might be like a Caucasian skin might be at a typically in the sort of like mid greens kind of thing. And then all the dark stuff would be like a, a, a the, the medium to dark blue. Right. Which I would right. set that level at like 10 or something like that or 11. So anything below that would be black, but of course yep. it's still detailed down to zero. So that way if I'm in the blue range, I'm in the 14, 15, 16 kind of range like that. And that way there's plenty of detail, but it can look on the screen a lot that can look very, very dark, if not close to black. So that's sort of range kind of thing. And then, uh, so like, yeah, skins in the high, high blue kind of like, you know, mid green kind of thing, which is like 38, 40 kind of thing, or a little less than that ish. But I don't really yeah. think about those numbers. I'm just more doing it by eye. That's that's for me. That's the thing about the LUT is it allows me to sort of, once I get used to seeing that and getting my eye to it, then I'm just on set. I can kind of get it. And then right. I can just, I just do it by eye and then I can have my, you know, if I'm at, if at the, mo- if I'm at the monitor, for example, I can just sit there with the, with the remote iris and get it, you know, kind of right where I want get right. the exposure kind of ex- as close as possible to what I want and do that more by eye. I find that a quicker way for me to work. I'm not thinking about ratios or measuring that kind of stuff. Like, you know, sometimes use my meter to, to sort of start a scene or to, you know, in an environment where I'm, I'm using the stuff that's there, depending on what the day's been like, let's say I've been out in the sun all day, my eyes are maybe not going to be as tuned to knowing what that is. So I'll right. use my meter to kind of get the get the framework that way. But if I'm on in the studio and I'm kind of getting more used to it, then it's like I'd like to be able to do it by eye as much as possible. Well, the the main reason I asked honestly was uh, for selfish reasons because I I, I kind of needed a uh, sanity check. I've tried to sneak that question by a lot of DPs and they kind of don't uh, give me the exact numbers or whatever. But it's mostly just like exposing digital, especially depending on the camera, can sometimes be 
weird, you know, when like uh, the Alexa and the, my Canon here and, you know, they both suggest like, oh, put skin at like 60. Oh, and yeah. It's like, way too high. And it's way too high. <laughs> and I started yeah. and I started doing it like at key or like you said, a little under. And I'm like, wow, this looks way better. And I'm like, that's I have to remind myself like that is what the engineers said. Yeah. Not what the artist said. Well, also like skin at 60, like what's in the rest of the scene? I mean, skin yeah. could be fine at 60, but like, I mean, if a, a skin, your skin at 60 in that room, like you're going to lose probably, you'll probably be too high in the back, you know, your background than you want, like for grading possibly. Yeah. Right. So could then have the whole thing would be 60, 70 high. Like, right. If your your skin's close to the back wall, then you know what I mean? Like it's more about the range of those things. And for me, that's where the viewing let comes in. That's so important. Right. Cause I'm then I'm looking at the contrast I'm between turn off things. the LUT for you. Oh, where is it? Uh, oh, yeah, it'll go. It it'll get go all, all milky. Yeah, it's, uh, let's see. Off. So there you go. There's. Yeah. So there's still, like you were saying, in the HDR, you would still keep all of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. All of this for the most part. But. And also that also next interesting thing is that that. You know that in that Canon space, like that that. Uh, you know that um, log that no lut thing is really narrow like it's all yeah. oh, you know what i mean and that's the thing i liked about the alexa was yeah it's flat but there's i could you know there's more you know what i mean like whereas other things confuse me like at some of the red camera stuff like, everyone just goes whoop and it's like it's so narrow that i'm like i can't see anything about the difference between these things that way yeah where a lot becomes even more important i think so i don't know it's um it's an interesting it's an interesting question i mean i would never go by what i mean that the engineers can say in that context but it's more just and also just grading the stuff is what really tells you, right? Like if you, the, the bigger danger of those things is like, I think with a format like that, for example, they're saying 50 or 60 because the probably the, the biggest problem with those cameras will be the bottom will fall out when it gets your, right. when you're grading stuff in the bottom. And so they want, they don't want to make sure you don't underexpose because that's more the common issue that will make the material not look good out of that camera. Uh, whereas maybe it handles highlights particularly well, or they know that at least if they're burned out, they don't look bad. You know what I mean? It could just be a simpler thing of like what will what will give them a more positive uh the customers a more positive impression of our camera right yes you know what i mean but like i think like you know it's easily on thrones faces would be kind of like in the mid greens area so like middle of the curve slightly below the bottom depending on the skin uh but also we'd have a lot of contrast right so have a lot of darkness and stuff and i think it was similar i think on on moon knight the let was was pretty heavy I think, you know, and sometimes like we'd turn it off, like some of the night scenes where we just didn't have enough light or we just crank up the ISO a little bit or just, you know, make a tweak. And we made certainly made tweaks for each scene, I think, in Moon Knight a bit more like the Asylum, you know, which uh, Andrew had shot the first scene. That looks great. Yeah, but he he made some tweaks just to like just to pop the whites a bit more, just to just stretch things out a little bit more, a little bit more high end contrast. And we'd make a little things like that for the some night stuff, but it would start with our base and just like tweak it a bit. Um and, and that was without, you know, going too far off the rails. Yeah. You know, I uh, kind of another two part. I'm just noticing I had written all these notes down and then Jesus Christ, I got to let you go. This is, we've uh, had your far, far along. Well, yeah. Oh, my God. It's five o'clock already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We, we, I tend, we, I tend to give dinner. long answers. So I apologize. No, it's that's like fine. A, I, sound beat. I tend to keep going until I have to remind myself, like these people have families and jobs um, versus me just sitting in my my girl. My girlfriend works till 830. So I'm just sitting here. Um, but, uh, you know, with, with sci-fi and fantasy films and stuff, it can feel like, uh, 
maybe they're harder to light or harder to shoot. Is that, do you find that true? Is there, or in what ways do they differ from a more, uh, let's say realistic genre? Well, um, I guess what well, depends. I mean, so, one, you get different sources. I mean, like Moon Knight, for example, we had a lot, st- plus a lot of stereotypes. St- yeah. <laughs> was the second part oh, of the yeah. question. Oh yeah. Stereotypes were like, that was the, Oh, if I got to have those on the killing, oh my God. But um, <laughs> we're using like Kinos a lot. And then you're like, in the old days, we'd have like the Kino and then we'd like, okay, to get the, because the, the killing was kind of the opposite of Thrones. I was shooting very, very, very under. So the idea was to use, because the big danger or the big concern then was like the, the top end looking wrong to a film curve. So it was like, I just want to make sure that I want to save as much top end um, information as possible. So we're going kind of the opposite direction. I mean, there's some scenes in The Killing, there's some stuff in some episodes in season three. There's a, there's a scene I really love in, uh, um, in uh, what episode is it? It's the one where she's kidnapped in the car, um, directed by Lodge Kerrigan. Um, I can't remember what episode it is. It's like it's episode eight, I think. And there's a scene where they end up in a park, parking garage, right? And he drives her in there because he's, he's forcing, he's kidnapped her. She's driving. He's got a gun. He's got a gun to her and he's in the back seat. And they go into this garage and then he turn, they turn out the lights. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so now I get them sitting in the car by themselves. And I'm like, you know what? Now I'm like, I'm getting better at this sort of idea of just putting a little hint of light on the, on a concrete wall. But I've got them sitting in the car and I've got them sort of, you know, edge lit by like this nothing light over there. And I've just, it's just black in the foreground, but I exposed it super low. So it was like, I mean, the, it was like, if you the waveform, everything was like, where's my, I mean, everything was all like down here. It was like this little bump, like the top of my hand, right? This little tiny. And, um, but it worked really great. And the grade, we managed to clean it up and it's, and I'm super proud of that scene. But the, but the, but back to do that kind of light, low level, it's like, well, how do you, like and like and this is like we have no LED lights, there's no sky panels, we're not dialing things down like percentage by percentage. You're like, put in a double. Oh, that's too much. Right, back the lineup, but adds more diffusion. So you have all these tricks to do that. And one thing we do with the with the kinos, which we did with uh, Owen uh, Taylor, our amazing gaffer, was like, well, we just put, you know, when the four things we put like one tube with the, you know, because they have high and low, right, on the on those right. ballasts, or on, if you if you're lucky to get those ballasts. And then you, uh, and then we put like one tube with like N6 on it, one tube with N3 on it and the tube without, right? So there was, so with that step, you could go like, okay, half power in the three and then full power in this, like you could do, you could create five or six little brightness steps. Instead of dimming them? Yeah. Because the you, dim would fuck the color up, right? Oh, completely. Yeah. We couldn't, yeah. I mean, the, di- the keynotes wouldn't dim. It was just like you're on off or like whatever, half power, full power. Mine would go so pink. I just traded them oh, in yeah. for the LED panels. And yep. for anyone listening, the, the Kino LED panels, I have a color meter, you know, one of the Seconic, the new ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have gotten 100 TLCI out of the Kino, wow. out of the uh, Kino LED panels. They are that's, shockingly accurate. That's a bit better than the Celeb way back then. So, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the, uh, the Yeah, it was like we have all these tricks to do that, right? To, like, try and create the brightness that we want. Because, I mean, at one point, like we're doing such little stuff. Like I'm taking a tube with like, you know, snow blanket stuff on like that white insulation thing. And we're bouncing it into a car. You put around you know? like Christmas trees. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We'd wrap a tube in that. And then like, you'd be careful cause it can get them too hot, but it'd create a nice fall off effect as a way to sort of like, and then we're like bouncing into a card and like, you know, making a book. I mean, it was getting ridiculously low levels, but the, it was, you know, the work was, was, it worked out really well. But yeah. uh, what was, I'm sorry, what was the question? About oh, the first it was part? just, was, uh, it was uh, the difference between lighting 
actually, this is kind of be, uh, more where I wanted the conversation to go anyway, which was just the uh, oh, talking oh, yeah, about so different si- sources si- and yeah. stuff. Yeah, Sci-fi science fiction is regular, but even so, talking about sources in general is like interesting. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I mean, in science fiction, you can get a lot of built-in lighting, which can be really interesting because that can be like a self-lighting set is a fascinating thing to try and help to help to build, like the expanse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, with the work Jeremy did on that, like, it's like, it's, and also the expanse is also not just self like sets, but I'm going to shoot everything with like a, you know, 20 mil lens, uh, right. And those are with Cook S5s everything. and like, yeah. you know, and it was, um, but also that's a great way because then you're thinking again, I like about like the mood. You want to think about the mood you need in the scenes and also like how you can vary the mood, right, with the built in lighting. Like, you've got, you know, from the desks or like, you know, you start looking for places for sources that would sort of fit. The, the design, but also, or either build them in exactly or cheat them from, right? So, mm-hmm. and then also you can work very quickly like that. Mm-hmm. So the big thing is the types of sources and it, it creates a lot of conversation about like, you know, par, you know, par bulbs or like, you know, tubes or whatever you're going to use, things like that. And there's some amazing new stuff out now, like those Astera, like um, those little Astera spotlight ones, like the AS5s and the S7s, which are like these little like small. Oh, yep, yep. Yeah. Those, because they also have amazing Saw color those response. Saw yeah, they're like, I mean, I remember I was, I mean, the digital Sputniks were really popular and I've used those a couple of times when, when Balash, my, uh, our gaffer in Hungary in Budapest on Moon Knight, he's like, yeah, Greg, I don't uh, like the colors. So I said, try the, I'm going to compare it to the stairs. And he's like, we're like, yeah, these are basically, yeah, these are way better. Let's use those. So yeah, we found a bunch Sputniks of those. Yeah, the Sputniks were a little iffy. Yeah, the they were like response. this, the, it was very, well, there's a lot, way too many spikes in the, in the color yeah. spectrum. Uh, for me and and the and the fringes of the bulbs kind of like the pattern be kind of weird yeah. very punchy and really interesting but these asteras look great like there you get the they get the nice kind of color response that their tubes have and they were great ways to use like for small practicals like you need uplight on a column because they're also battery powered so like plug right. them in put them down right it's like it's a great and you can make any color with them and they're quite bright and so we use them a lot in like the museum set for example or and location and and that kind of thing you could also build into sets now. Like that's like I haven't done like a sci-fi, you know, something with built-in lighting since we've had this technology. And you could really, you know, now with a lot of that stuff LED, you can have way more like control over making a mood. Um, but it does make it does bring in the bigger thing about what are the light sources for scene? Like, is it gonna be the window or is it gonna be fire? Like there's a lot of a lot of fire stuff in the Chamber of the Gods. It also bring out the gold color of some of the outfits and things. We had some cooler things or, you know, there's some sodium color stuff like that sometimes outside or uh, it's, you know, or like I know I have to do a lot of cross shooting. I need the whole set to be, I need a set to kind of like to be self-lighting and I'm not, I'm less worried about creating a lot of contrast in the scene other than the fact I know I got to shoot three cameras. I got like eight, six pages of like, it's going to be and create something neat. Like there's a, this, like the pyramids in the, the Mogart set in episode three, where they go to, to where the horse fight happens. Like the, mm-hmm. the pyramids were like, you know, these incredible metal structures that Stefania built. And I was staring at them with these, and she, she painted all the entire inside of the pyramid structures gold. And like, you know what? I don't want to like line all these things with like tubes. It's going to look a bit too Christmassy, but, uh, and there's some tubes in some of the second unit work, which is just a mistake that they were on. But, but I thought it would be kind of cool if, if you get the light at the right angle, I shine up, it'll probably, it'll probably kick off all these tubes and it'll probably get enough light off of the framework. If I light that quite bright, which will probably look good because the color is so intense. And if I add gold light to them, 
And I'll get enough stuff that'll create enough ambience, and I can add some a spotlight for the middle for the the sarcophagus or whatever. Right. So to do that, I was like, well, then, uh, well, then it has to be something bright. And it's like, okay, now we got to put. And so I, we ended up putting sky panels down there into the structure, and they were shining through a little narrow gap. But that the gap was just at the right angle. That would just it would still get all of the just in front of the structure. So that became I could blast that really strong, and then the whole place lit up, and it just looked great in all the wide shots, and yeah. created enough stuff that it gave a nice hot background, a nice hot bit of gold behind and all the coverage and created enough ambience as well. So it was like, you'd have a, basically, if I'd looked at me, you'd be, have a bright thing behind me, which could be nice little reflections off faces, but also it would create enough kind of ambience at the front that you could almost see, you know, me. So it was actually kind of, it served two purposes, but so it literally was like, you know, light, you know, ripping up, bouncing off all the gold structure right was became the light of the scene because also i needed yeah. something because also it's a whole wall of mirrors to, to pyramid right so it's like you're not going to hide lights in the place yeah. right because you're going to see them everywhere you know you know i can't be hiding them all the time i can it's easy to throw some black over the camera and, and crew members but to be, be moving and covering lights all the time in a, in a wall of mirrors is bad so that was a great that was a good way to like build a light in for that scene and that happens way more in those environments i find which is like what's kind of cool about it what's the fun the fun change of it you know instead of just imitating daylight which is you know something which also could be really great then it's staging where your scene is like is there a window or things like that yeah you know i uh I'll, the honestly the majority of the dps i've interviewed have espoused the uh joy of the astera tubes and i oh, yeah. and i need them to sponsor this podcast because i've been doing it for free for too long but <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's if- like they're yeah they're great they're really a great they're great a great toy a great tool and this isn't like watching someone walk across set, like, you know, like walking across in their hand, you know, right. and then suddenly it's on the board. Then like I'm at the board and I'm like, oh, Christ, they're walking over there. Turn that one up. Oh, you know? the and, iPad app, too. I mean, oh, yeah. any, any wireless DMX. But or yeah, just, just like, being able to dial it in off the iPad is sa- such yeah. a joy now. Saving a take or saving something by having an LED fixture at your or having either a combination of remote iris or being able to you know, tweak the brightness of something when something's going haywire and, you know, maybe uh, an actor's overshot their mark or like something very unexpected happens and you need to adjust the lighting on the fly to save a take. It's like, it's, it's an incredible tool for that. And never mind yeah. just being able to do like camera moves and like, you know what, when they turn around, we'll just dumb those things out. And, you know, this is how we can get rid of the camera shadow. And suddenly that's like, if I can just have them all in their own channels, then, you know, we can now do something where we're, we're fluidly changing the lighting just to make the shot possible to avoid the boom guy's shadow or the camera shadow or something else. And it's a really, it's a fantastic tool. Are you um, primarily using those in the sets or are they all uh, sometimes often used as keys? Are you modifying them at all? Cause obviously, you know, putting them in the set is like the classic way, but I've tried to use them as keys. Sometimes the Titans are pretty bright, but the older ones yeah. weren't, weren't really that bright. Uh, yeah, I've I've used them as key a couple times. So put, like we used to have a we had a, a clip where you could put two of them in a row and a little spud. So you have like you know you get two of yeah. them together um, instead of being like a keynote kind of harness. Um, I've used them. We use them for firelight quite a lot, which is because there's a couple oh. good fire cues you can use them on. And so if I have real fire in the scene, I need to add a little more. I'll put the, put on the ground next to the fire, or if I want to wrap it around more, or I've got the real fire there and put some snow blanket on it that's a great uh, we use that a lot actually for in the like in the chamber of the gods for example just to add more firelight put two or three on the ground to control them and then again you can dim them when the camera goes the wrong way we did, we did a couple 360s in there around harrow when he was when he was raising um amit um yeah and there's what we'd like to you know, track with the camera a little bit 
Uh, and we use them for effects a lot. Like a lot of things, there's some magical effects in obviously Moon Knight where there's occasional times when there's sparkling blue magic or there's a magic fight or some of those, some things like that. And they're great for that because you can put them on the ground. If I'm interactive lighting on somebody's face for like, you know, purple magic, I can put that down there. And even in a wide shot, if I need to paint it out, but as long as I keep it out of the person's overlapping the person, then VFX is pretty easy to, as a paint out because it's so small. And they really want some interactive light on them, but I can't get the interactive light if the wide shot. I mean, I can't shine it across the set from 100 feet because it's going to be on right. all the wrong way. If I want it to be between the two actors, you can put that on the ground, pick the right way to hide it, you know, and uh, create that. So it's very useful for that. It's great for like what I'll often do is put them. Let's just say I want to continue the light. Let's say we're in a parking garage or there's a column or something like if I want to add a bit more light, just on somebody motivated from a window far away, but I don't have room for all that. I can hide the two behind the column and just get a little bit of light on them. And it'll still feel like it's from the source farther away and make it soft enough. So they're great to hide for things like that. And those are the most ways I wouldn't like use it uh, uh, normally. It's really is like a single key or unless it's like to be like a razor light type thing. You put some card on to make it small and you can, you know, put either they even make those things. Now they make little like single um, tube, uh, like almost like a soft yeah like a soft grid honeycomb type thing or make a razor light for it and then it's like to put a kick on something because then it's be super small like it hide it it can go behind a piece of furniture and i can light the ground with it or whatever and it's a way to create accents on things and hide them very small that's that's a really useful way to use them sure um you you actually just reminded me of a question i wanted to ask and we'll make that the last one so uh i don't keep you forever Yeah, we'll nice. just have to have you back on because I'm sure we could go for another two or three. Oh yeah, we'd be, um, we'll be happy to. It's really I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having such uh, you know shedding such interest on this kind of things we do. Also, with this hopefully people are hopefully it's useful for people, especially some yeah, students are watching. Here's the thing, man. It's fucking useful for me. So oh yeah, <laughs> worst great. case scenario. You know that's the thing is like I've been doing these and like you know I made the joke about not having sponsors or anything, but like. I've learned more in the past two years mm-hmm. than I ever did at film school. Yeah. You know, and if I'm a handful of times, it's been a case where like I'm working on a project and I'm like, oh, great. I get to ask an ASC member like what they would do. Yeah. And I, I will always this is a little bit of a, how the sausage is made. I always make it sound like it's not me. No, no, <laughs> you know, no. For, pe- mean, for people who might be working on, I don't know, some really specific somebody, project. Yeah. I've heard once this one problem <laughs> yeah, yeah. that came up. Uh, uh, no, but I think that's me. a, but that's a great way to motivate it. Why? I mean, that's, I mean, because I've, I've moderated, you know, conversations myself for other things. And, um, you know, I'm always like, yeah, this questions I want to ask, like there's, you know, like, and, and there's then sometimes the most interesting because they're coming from a genuine, you know, place of curiosity. Right. So, yeah. Well, and my thought is always like, if I need to know this, someone else will need to know this. Like yeah. I have a note here that says like, all of my revelations, someone has known for far longer than me. So don't sound stupid. That's just a note that I have next to the camera, but it's also like <laughs> at a certain point, you know, someone's got to know it anyway. Um, the question I wanted to ask was what are some things working on these VFX heavy shows like Moon Knight or Game of Thrones or whatever that, um, or even Watchmen to that degree that maybe sort of everyone can use like the classic one that I say is like split comps. Oh, we need to get a light or the microphone in closer. It's like, well, if you've got like a locked off shot or a nodal shot, yeah, just walk the microphone out for a second, get that blank frame, and then yeah. you can just cut out and it takes no to you can do it in Premiere. You don't need a VFX background. Yeah. Like what are some things maybe that you've learned on those shows that like kind of maybe everyone can use a little bit of post know how? Well, that's that's one. Um 
also, but the thing about that is also on a bigger show, like I can do that, but I, I got to have to get approval to do that. I can't just do that on sure. my own. I've got to like talk to the VFX department because depending on their pipeline and everything else, like there's their schedule. You know, that's one thing is, it's like for me, the big thing is to be involved as early as possible in any, anything that's going to be either like a, you know, CG character or virtual environment or things like that. Cause it's an opportunity for me to use the ability to, to create an environment to help really create the mood I want for the scene. If I know we're going to be up against a, like a fake sky or something like that, then, um, you know, I want to control what that sky is. I want to be able to have an influence on for what we do with the clouds and like what the, the look and feel of it is, because that's, that's a big part of the look of the scene. And that allows me to, and the biggest, the biggest thing is to appreciate, appreciate one, talk to them as early as possible conceptually about any of those things. And, and then realize like, you know, the, how you like the foreground affects the background, right? Like it affects both mm. things. If I'm doing a virtual environment, then they will they will roll over the lighting I have on the person into the background, right? So it's like it's uh it's not, you know, it. I know it sounds uh, simple, but it's a uh, it's a team sport as far as building right. that look and making the making the VFX stuff seamless, right? And I think that's the biggest part of it. It's also going to be an incredible tool because it's like there's a way. There's a great way, and it's like I say, you can really do something more extreme. It's like, hey, you know what? What if we did this? Like, there's a way to you know, me to change the mood of the scene by like, can you just, what if you erase all this or like, you know what I mean? There's ways that you can change the look of a location, right. Or things like that, that could be part of it. And, uh, and you just don't want, you don't want to have the, the whole VFX section being kind of separate from you. It's a, it should be all part of the same, you know, conversation. Um, I think it's really important. Yeah. So it, are your V for your shows is VFX mostly like, erasing equipment and set extensions are those kind of the two most common or they're like other little kind of hidden things that are popping up. Well, I mean, there'd be set extensions would be a, a big thing in a, in a, like for a show with sets like a moon Knight, for example, because like, you know, chamber of the gods, we built up to a certain point and everything else above it. Then in which case the environmental lighting I'm making for that set needs to kind of make sense with where we're going to extend things like that. Um, this is the stuff in Cairo where we're like, okay, we're, we're not going to shoot on the rooftop of the Cairo. So we're going to build two rooftops and it's going to extend everything like that. So then I'm thinking about like, well, where should the sun be? I want it to be backlit because I want it to be a hot kind of like deserty thing or let's say on a, on the cliff scene in episode three as well. It was also like, we built a cliff, but we didn't build, you know, we were not in Cairo. So, um, you know, that's more just like trying to plan about where the lighting is. Like, like there's a scene, like when I did like some of the dragon flying scenes and thrones, like after I finished my episodes, I would, I'd stayed a couple times to do the, the, you know, Daenerys on the back of the dragon. And there was this great scene in, 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 uh, season six. When does she burn? When does she, uh, release her dragons? Is that, yeah, it's season six. So is that season six? I think, no, is it? Yeah. I can't remember. No, I'm losing track. Anyway, unfortunately, I'm going to let you know, I never saw the show. It's okay. It's okay. So, uh, well, anyway, there are these one, big, of, one of four. There, there are these big four big dragons. <laughs> well, they start really small, but anyway, there's a bit in the terms of the story. It's kind of a magical bit when there's all these stories about dragon riders and the people of the Targaryen heritage that she's from, because they're they're basically like you know it's a you know it's a medieval thing. We've got bows and arrows and swords, and it's like suddenly somebody's got an F sixteen. It's like guess who's going to win right. the fight? So <laughs> in the brief, please fire. So there's a there's a scene where like the first time she really like the dragon rescues her once at the end of season. Five, that's right. So yes, yeah, so in season six, she gets on fully and she's flying around, and then she two of the dragons are kind of trapped, and they and she goes out there by herself and burns a bunch of um, burns a bunch of uh, uh, these ships that were threatening her city and stuff like that. And it's a big like holy fuck you moment. Like oh, I guess this is now we've heard about this for five seasons how people could do this, and this is like 
it's a pretty spectacular moment and it's for the character and also for the story because it's like it's just changed the calculus of all of the politics and the power struggle in the show but for her it's also kind of moving so they vfx this sort of thing and when i um when Joe Bauer, who are a VFX supervisor, he's like, well, Greg, it's like one, these things are really difficult. And cause you did this amazing balcony scene last year. Like I want to, whether you're one of the few people, you know, that I know other than, you know, Dean Selmer who could ever pull us off and very, very flattering, but also it's, and I was like, well, can I, can I really pitch like what the sky should look like? Cause a couple of them will be virtual environments. Cause the city of Marine is obviously doesn't, is not a real place. It's kind of like a, a weird mix of like a, like a Cairo with pyramids and ancient Aztec architecture. And it's like, fantastical place in a, in a dry environment and um he said oh yeah you can totally like design like what you want the like because i'm like the 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 pre the what the what the dragons are doing is going to be set but as far as like what the where the lighting is i'm like well now it's kind of cool because now i can help make these shots look really neat and there was right. a there was a particular shot where we're kind of behind them and like they're banking they're kind of going in for what's ostensibly an, an attack run where they're going to go burn these ships and i thought it would be great to have the sun across certain way because as they go with the shiny dragon wings like the sun will like travel like the, the reflection it's very familiar to like like top gun you know right two f-14s like that's the sun's shining on the wing that's a bit similar i just want to evoke that imagery right to evoke like the images of, of fighter planes and famous fighter plane movies and as a way to, so i get to just help design that and then i was like oh now i'm excited about this because now i'm contributing this is not even my episode i shot is for an episode that um miguel sabachnik directed and and Fabian Wagner shot, but I was like, this is a way to make, I can help make this thing really cool and help do this. And then the same way that to put a real person on what's a, what's a CG character, entering the lighting is very important. So in one of the first shots, you know, I was like, well, I, I should, I feel like when the wings come up, cause they're like, these are, I mentioned like a, like a big, like an eagle with a longer neck, like they're, it's a big right. swooping thing. When the wing goes up, we should have, I want to put the sun away that the, the, sh the wing will shadow her, right? Which will then help make her like totally integrated into the into the scene it won't look like a sure. cg person stuck on a a regular person stuck in a cg dragon so the first couple of times i was like well i'll put the sun over there for that i was just trying to think if all the things all the tools i could use to make it interactive and more interesting and i remember um steve Kulbach, the producer came in he's like right what's that weird shadow going there and i was explained to him what i was doing he's like he just patted me on the back like that's fantastic like because he's like because <laughs> he's like because of him it's like this is one of the hardest things to do is to make this not look like you know car and like it's all hinging on this right like we know the show is gonna have more of these things like we have to make this look great we're all nervous about it and so we just had you know we because the animation is uh when you're shooting a person on the on the on like essentially the motion base at the back of the dragon it's kind of running in the program of the dragon right it's not like a separate thing so the dragon's motion is all thing the shots you know previous with how the it's camera consistent. moves yeah it's like print play she's riding it's that way when they cut her out she'll go right onto the cg dragon and it'll be totally like the, the thing she's touching is moving like the dragon right. um and so that means i know when the wing is going right so now we could play so we'd play the animation on a monitor in sync you know in sync with it so the guy you know my poor electrician who's like you know 80 feet in the air in front of the 20k sun with a with a, you with know, a show card <laughs> literally yeah with like and he's watching going like and then down and then like and trying to get it in sync we just once we worked out the timing it's just it's so ridiculous right but it was so much fun uh and it was like yeah it really worked like there's that one shot it's like two flaps but man it totally makes it believe which once you get the first shot right the audience is like you know more into it and um right and that fighter plane shot was really cool and so you know i just tried to use all the tools to make that that all the stuff as neat as possible to help reinforce the you know what it was the imagery it was supposed to evoke and also just make it look cool because it's like for the audience it's like 
they've never they've been like in the Tacoma story because the big like cycle thing of like history and unreliable narrators and so there's a lot of talk of like old wars and battles and stuff and then as the characters age the younger characters go into positions of power and like still with the story so when this happened it's like oh we've heard about this shit and like it better live up to people's you know imaginations of what they've been hinted at right so yeah. but it was again it was really it was just like a fun way to try and make it more integrated and i think that's the biggest thing is like be involved early um as much as you can as cinematographer any of the vfx or any of the um you know any of the conceptual ideas because even the ideas of like how what the scene should look like it's the same for me as being in prep with the director and the production designer it's like well should we do it this way like is this a better thing to do like all cg or is this like do is it better if i build this part or it's like you want to be involved as early as possible in the same way that i want to be involved right up to the very end with color timing because we do so many things uh you know that we have to kind of like you know, push to the finish line. That's like me finishing the cinematography, right? Like I, I know I'm going to darken the wall over your head later. Cause there was no way to do that at the time. And I can, now I want to know how to do that. And I think that's yeah. the biggest thing is be involved as early as possible and stick and go all the way through if you can. Well, and to, to your credit about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the wing thing, I've been watching a lot more, uh, or I have all these Cinefix manuals and, um, been really interested in visual effects recently. And, uh, the earlier VFX guys were always talking about like exactly like you're saying, like integrate, how do we make it look realistic and finding like one or two things, like even on Terminator two or whatever, you know, they're inventing the technology and there's, there's like one or two things that sell it, you know, the yeah. idea of selling yep. it and not just having it be totally VFX. Yeah. Oh, VFX looks real or CGI looks realistic. It's like, but there's ways to integrate it so that it, it sells oh, yeah. it, you know? Well, that's um, the thing about the, I was going to say the one thing about that on moon Knight, for example, is we have a lot of like, you know, characters that are going to be put in later, right? Like Talret, uh, Khonshu. Um, and the, the big thing about those things is, you know, we'll have a maquette to, as a reference, like a big Khonshu head or a big Talret head. And that's a reference for many things, but also I will light the scene for that character. So I light, I'm mostly lighting the thing that's not there, which sounds crazy, but because all that lighting effects, like if the, the you know, Oscar walks through the same place, I, I if I don't do that, and they start doing the lighting, then they start doing lighting, which doesn't affect him, which means suddenly it breaks the illusion that it's not a part. It's really important to light the thing that's not there. And it sounds completely crazy. Like I'm lighting the dragon that's not there and I'm lighting Conchu that's not there, but it makes a huge difference to uh, the ability of those things to really fit in. And also it makes me think about the lighting of the scene, right? Like Conchu's got a big gray head. There's stuff in the chamber of the gods like, oh yeah, I'm going to put the fire over here because I know he's going to look cool with the fire under his beak. And you're trying to right. like, and it makes a big difference because when they put that in there with the the reference they have with the, you know, grain silver ball and HDR and everything on, they're a lot of light. It's like, wow, he's already, we're already 90% there, right? Like it's like, I you know, want to do the work for the CG character because also then I am, I'm having control over the look and feel of the character in the scene, right? Which is yeah. part of the job of cinematographer. I just don't want to leave that up to other people that may not even thinking what I'm thinking about that. You know, it's part of the, it's part of the job. Uh, yeah. I mean the, I had to read the quote, but you had said somewhere that like, you should find out the first time that something was used. Like I think the example you gave was a moving camera and then study why. And that's oh. something that I've been trying to articulate for a long time. And you nailed it in one sentence. Cause I'm like, that's how you learn. You don't learn from reading the newest thing. Yeah, you figure out the first time they had to invent it, which is what I was getting at with the, the Cinefix and stuff. Figure yeah, out yeah. why they did that because they're usually trying to figure out how to solve a problem that yeah. was earlier, and everything informs it, each other. Cinefix, great publication. 
great publication. No, when they the, went out of when they went out of business, I I emailed them. I was like, "How many can you sell me?" I actually got a handful that they said they didn't have, yeah. but I bought I, so many oh. that they were like, "We have uh, some of these like <laughs> we have Star a few Wars we can get or you. whatever." Yeah, I uh, yeah I. Uh, it's funny. There's a, oh, there's a great like I stumbled across a YouTube channel. There's a there's a documentary about model makers called Sense of Scale. You just, okay. If you go into YouTube and search for that, I think the company's Pierce Film Productions, but he's been basically releasing lots of the uh, little short interviews from the stuff that didn't make the cut of the film. And it's all model makers from like the golden age of like, you know, pre CGI stuff. And it's, it's fascinating because you'll hear like the idea of like, well, I had to do this. And so I hadn't figured out like, you know, it's really a whole bunch of people describing the, the like the art of model making and what they had to make or how they solve problems in certain films. And, uh, and I think that's the, like the thing, it's like the, it's like the film, like I was discussing with somebody else, like the film, like I, like, for example, I didn't figure out like when was the first match cut done on a swish pan. I don't, I don't know when that was, but like, right. when, like to do to build, bury a cut in a pan that you would go quick enough that you can bury it in the, the motion. I don't know where that was, but I was like, Oh, I know this technique, but it's more, it's, I guess what I was talking about is there was just like, remember that there's, there's a purpose to those things, right? Like it's not the, Cause it like part of when you're trying to come up with an, an idea, it's like, well, what is the, like, what's the goal? What am I trying to accomplish? Right? Like what is, and then it's, then that should lead you to like what the technique is that, you know, you can sort of fit into it. Like, like we used every twinning technique we could on, on moon Knight for, you know, for sometimes for expedience, sometimes like I had to fit in, like, how do I do, I need to do three cameras at once, two of them will be nodal pans, one's, you know, on a techno dolly or whatever. And, but you're trying to do what the technique will give us the, the, the material that we need for the day. Um, I just think it's interesting to find out that remembered, like there's things we take for granted. You forget are actually a tool. Like a close up is a tool. Like it's a filmmaking right. tool, right? Like they're not going for the close up. It's like, no, a close up is actually has a purpose, right? In a filmmaking context, it it's like, it's a very different perspective to see someone's face really close. We see way more performance, everything else. And so like in the first being the film, like it was like, oh, it's a tool. It's like, I've shot of only one person. Like, what does that mean? Or like, I don't know what I'm seeing. And it. it's like, you know, I had the edit, like, how you use a camera is like a tool, right? Like, you know, handheld, they're all like, it's a specific tool which has an effect. And I think that's what I was trying to get at. And that, in that quote was like, remember that like these things have an effect and they have a, they have a reason to exist, right? It's like, what is it? What is that reason? Like, so it's a refreshing thing to remember that there's a purpose to this and not just get lost and like, remember, oh, it's another close up, another close. It's like, no, should this be a close up, right? Like, remember yeah. it's a tool, that sort of thing. I find I can easily get in this, and especially in the heat of, you know, in the heat of like, uh, you know, shooting on a busy day, it's, it's a bit, it's, it's for me, the big battle is just not to get stuck and just like, you know, pedaling the bike and not and forgetting where you're going. Right. Yeah. It's, like a lo- it's a lot of like moving quickly, but like, no, wait a second, am I doing the right thing? And I, the people I really admire, like the cinematographers I, that I've known is like the ones that I've witnessed working and the ones I, you know, I try to emulate, but I often fail in that way is they really are really thoughtful. Like the, it's a thoughtful process first, instead of just, you know, pedal to the metal and like just don't stop looking right you know it's like there's it's like if you're it's thing which it's almost like just to bring it back which just earlier the when you have a lot of time for scene you're behind like the the you know the important thing is first thing is don't rush and don't rush the decision for how you want to approach something because sometimes just think about it for like well do i need coverage in this like no maybe i don't like well who's what if they're, you know, and like everyone have an idea, but it's to be thoughtful instead of like, hurry up, get the first shot going, right? The first AD is screaming at you like, wait, I got the first shot going. And I'm like, well, let's just think about what shot we're going to do. 
Yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll only do one shot. Maybe it's like one in a pickup or, you know, it's like not to rush those decisions. Cause that's the thing that I, when I was younger, I would struggle with the most is like to, to just like, you know, the anxiety of like having a little time might get the better of me. And then I might be trying to rush too much, to like force the decision when now I'm much better at like, you know what, hold on a second. Let's just take a breath and like, not, not panic and then try and make a more thoughtful choice. Cause the more thoughtful choice will most often be the more memorable or better for the scene than what you just like speed ahead and just do exactly what we just did on the last scene. Even if you can do yeah. it quickly, it's like still like, now it just isn't the right thing for the scene, right? Or it's like trying to be thoughtful. I mean, the sort of like, to, to keep myself on track with that when I was younger, the idea would be like, if I'm doing a scene, if it's like, I need to think about it at least as long as it's on screen. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, sure. so you know what I mean? It's like, sometimes you're so quickly. It's like, you know, hey, if this is like two people talking for eight minutes, better think carefully about this and also spend the time lighting this because people are me staring at this for eight minutes. Yeah. So if I make a, you know, a quick decision or we don't block it nicely or get things in the right place to express what we want, I'm doing a terrible disservice because this is eight minutes they're staring at it, right? Sometimes it's like, you know what? They're putting a phone down. That's like, you know, I can make it look pretty good, the right thing. That's something you burn through. You know, yeah. you just get the, get the take, right? But it's not like you want to, you don't, you want to balance the focus you have and the consideration you have on how important it is to the story. Like it doesn't have to be about the length of time it's on screen. Sometimes it's more the importance of the image. Maybe this image is used twice. Maybe it's the first and last shot of your film or something, but you want to balance the amount of consideration you take to it and the design work and also the execution accordingly. Right? Like you have to pick your battles. And I try and like, remember like how important is this and, yeah. and you know, not to like burn through it. Cause if you do that well, and you apply that, I find if I do have to, again, then I'm at some point where we're talking before, then suddenly I'm rushing for something. I'm going to know, I know, yeah, I know I did this quickly, but I'm still going to apply this idea of like, it's important. Let me just think, let me just think about a minute before I just rush into it. I'll still get to something I do very quickly, but I want the, the thinking to be like, hold on, let's just, what's going to be the right thing. And then often the thing you can do really quickly, it can be as thoughtful and as good looking as, you know, everything else, hopefully. Yeah. Well, and, and to the point of, uh, you know, thinking about the first time it was made. Another thing that I suggest for people as from a studying thing is uh, look at the films that came right before a new technology hit. Because <laughs> one, one thing that's fascinating is like silent films right up until sound came out were pretty mobile. The camera was getting moved all over the place. The mm. second they had to put that oh, yeah, fucking yeah. two-story blimp on yeah, it, everything yeah. was locked off. It was so basically it was basically in a, a phone booth the first couple. It was actually yeah. like a structure, like open the door, go in and yeah. It was a miniature house. So like yep. if you want to study interesting early camera movement, look at right before audio came out or you know like the the 90s right before like CGI mm. was really available. Yeah, you know, yeah, a lot of those films are interesting to study now that they're vintage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the Matrix, no, it's true. that old film? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's really, yeah, it's, I, I find that's like, like I mean, also right when Steadicam came out, like suddenly Steadicam's yeah. doing everything. It's a tool, right? It's, it's a tool. It's not for everything. Gimbals are a tool, right? You know, a split, you know, split screens are a tool. It's like, what's, split diopters are a tool, things like that. Like, that's actually... There, you know, I used, I used, we used a lot of those on, on Watchmen, for example, because it was, yeah. we were trying to get into you know, stacking the imagery in, in vertical planes because like a lot of comic book panels, like there's no focus, right? No uh, limited focus, right? So yeah. we were trying to use that composition. Like, well, I can put the foreground object in there and them, and I can let the audience can now choose between where to look, which is like you could in a comic panel. Split diopters just look cool. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Or or like we used to like the swing and tilt lenses for things like that too. But there's yeah, they're all tools. They just need to be kind of be applied, you know, correctly in the same way that you know how you move a camera is a different character to it, right? Like handheld is different. Like a like a, a handheld's different than a Steadicam, right? Steadicam is different than you know on a crane. And like you know, there's a lot of like how the camera feels in a scene, you know, matters to me in, in terms of how we decide to do that. And, and you want to have like come up with a strategy that's really that's consistent and will help, you know, the audience will kind of feel, they'll feel like they're in secure hands with the storytelling, right? Like you are the other expression I was uh, like describing, like the camera pretty thing. It's like, like you are, like they are taking the, they're, t- we are taking their eyes and going, I got right. you now <laughs> by the ears. Now if I'm doing to this people. to you, there's, yeah. there's, I'm, there's, it's a choice and I'm deliberately trying to shake and rattle you a little bit, like in the terms of the story, we are as filmmakers trying to do that in the same way that, you know, it's like, it shouldn't just be a grab way to like increase tension if it's, if it seems inappropriate or like the, like the big mistake I see that I've tried to, and I've been trying to get out of in my own work is like, you know, for example, like if I, even if I want to have the energy, the problem is if I need the audience to see something very specific, small, don't move the camera too much because you know, it's like, it's people can't focus when the things move around like that. And you see that a lot sometimes, like, I mean, that's just like the wrong way to do it. Cause like, if you want them to see it, they need to be able to see it. So, you know, keep the camera more still to allow them to focus on it. If it's all motion blur, they can't tell what that is. And then suddenly we're cutting to a insert because in poster, right. like, Oh, you can't see it now. We're now we've added an edit to the scene, which we didn't want because we shot in a way with the people, the audience couldn't tell what the hell we were trying to show them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just like everything is a tool that way. So it's like, it's still so much to learn. I mean, we're to be talking for two hours and I'm like, now I'm realizing, all right, there's a whole bunch of things I got to figure out before. You know? Well, you know what? Uh, when when you learn new things, please come back and uh, teach the rest of us because I'm sure they'll be fascinating. Oh, my um, pleasure. It's really fun. Really fun chatting about it. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh, Kate, really great to meet you. And I'd be happy to happily come back anytime if I'm free. It's a Absolutely. wonderful conversation. Thank you. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidart Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>